I'm here today with Matthew David Wilder, and you prefer Matthew over Matt, do you not? Sure. <laughs> Who is the is a uh, screenwriter and the director of a number of excellent films, which we'll be talking about today. Um, most recently, or not most recently, but one of, one of the ones I definitely want to talk about today is your movie regarding a case of Joan of Arc, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe is very underrated and was very prescient. Uh, it came out in 2018. Mm-hmm. I believe it's more relevant more relevant to us now than ever um so i definitely want we'll talk more about that later um but matt also wrote the screenplay or matthew rather also wrote the screenplay for dog eat dog which paul schrader directed in 2016 um he's got a lot of recent work uh that i'd also like to talk about today Uh, but before i run my mouth too much um why don't you introduce yourself matt yeah um okay i'll just just to say this at the outset we, we have a picture that we're shooting in los angeles in may that is uh it's secret. Uh, it's uh, it's it's through a uh, here, here's the only, here's the little Easter egg that I'll give your listeners. It's through a studio that's having a very good moment right now. Yes, you can you guys can decrypt that one as you <laughs> like. Uh, but it is I, I don't I'm not allowed to to talk uh, too much about it quite yet. Maybe by the time this podcast drops, we can say more. But it it has two fantastic actors, and it is a um, fictionalized version of a, a, a famous true crime story in California. So that's what I am uh, plunged into at the moment. But uh, you want me to give my story and just give my story in brief? Sure. Uh, my story in brief is uh, I was uh, I grew up in a town called Des Plaines, Illinois. If anybody listening has ever blown through the O'Hare Airport in Chicago. That's it. When you look outside the window of O'Hare Airport and you see an, a grim exurban wasteland, <laughs> that was my hometown. A very strange experience growing up, and I think this we can get into this maybe a little bit later, but it's something that I think a lot of Americans share, which is it's a place that has absolutely no indigenousness. It was like growing up like a feral child in a five-mile round 7-Eleven. Yeah. So what you remembered growing up was fluorescent lights and uh, Hostess fruit pies and maybe you know Mountain Dew jugs, but there was not a there was not a local indigenous flavor to anything. It was all commerce. Yeah. And I think that is a very um, common American experience. Definitely. Um, that's that's kind of not too much talked about, which is sort of like the identity of no identity. 
Exactly. Uh, yeah. I think there's there's not a lot of that. But that's where I that's that's sort of how I grew up. I grew up in a trailer park. My trailer park was worse than Eminem's trailer park. <laughs> um, and then uh, 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 I lived with my my grandparents and and my mom when I was a little bit older in a in a nearby town. And uh, I went to Yale. Yes. I went to uh, UCSD for directing theater. And I spent quite a long time in theater. I directed theater around the country. And, uh, you know, as I was doing that, I got representation here for writing uh, movies. And I wrote for people like Clive Barker. I wrote for Oliver Stone. wrote for uh, Rennie Harlan. Um, and this would have been the 1990s, It was basically. in the 90s, yeah, yeah, in the 90s. I moved to L.A. And um, di- still doing, you know, did a lot of theater. Um and I have, you know, to date I've directed two very nano features. I, I like both of them, but I, but um, I, uh, they're very nano. One is called Your Name Here, which features Bill Pullman, who is quite brilliant playing uh, a guy named William J. Frick, who's kind of a, a, a ripoff of Philip, J., Philip K. Dick. Uh, and then I directed another picture that you just mentioned called Regarding the Case of Joan of Arc, which takes the takes the exact text of the questioning of Joan of Arc and places it in Guantanamo Bay in a near future where Joan is a sort of, I guess you could call her white nationalist and or sort of Christian yeah, nationalist. Yeah, more, more Christian nationalist was there's my more, there's, there's more, I, <laughs> yeah. wish, I kind of wish if we had gone back, we would make her, I think, po- politically a little more explicit, but um, definitely Christian. And... Just to speak to that movie, I mean, the thing that was so crazy as we worked on that film was that if you read Joan's words that she spoke to the to her questioners about repelling the English in France, uh, what she was saying was the same things that at the moment we were making the movie, you would hear... 2017, right? You would hear Trump, Sebastian Gorka, Steve Bannon mm-hmm. saying those things about... Islam or about Mexicans or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Joan was saying those things almost word for word. Just cross out the names and put in another yeah. name. She was saying the exact same things. Um, so yes, that picture I think is uh, it is it is very of. It, I mean, it was I think prescient at that time, but I think now it's kind of of our. I moment. think more so. So my story that is, I'd heard about the movie around the time it came out, but I didn't see it. It was a somewhat limited release, etc. Um, but it is on Tubi now. Now, there may be certain things about the Tubi version that are not. Okay, now vision. here's. I'll let you get into it. Yeah. yeah, so here's the thing. So, this is a film that uh, the process is just beyond belief. I mean, we made this film for very little money. Uh, the producers, I think, didn't. They didn't like it, they didn't understand it. And we got into the National Film Festival of India, of all things. Yeah. Very strange. We went to the, the, the National Festival of India in Goa. And showed it. And, you know, not too long after, maybe, I don't know, well, it was a while after, maybe it was 2020, right when the pandemic hit, there was released this ridiculous version of the movie that the producers had taken to somebody in Las Vegas and, 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 I don't know if they even. Yeah, I guess they recut the movie. There's like a, the first scene shows her. Don't mom. tell me. Don't oh, tell me. I don't okay. want to know. <laughs> but if you look at the at the, yeah. the cover box, it looks like Olympus has fallen. Yeah, it has sort of like the exploding capital yeah. or something like that. Now, this whole movie was shot here in L.A. in Chinatown in a in a sweaty ex uh, you know sweatshop 
uh, in a in a in a studio space. It's it has a courtroom, it has a jail cell, it doesn't have too much else. Um, somehow in this in this direct video version, they they there's I don't know images of of the Capitol exploding or buildings yeah. blowing up or something something of that nature. Um, now Nicole La Liberté, who is a very very brilliant yes, brilliant definitely. woman who plays Joan. Um, I'll just add, listeners to this podcast may know her from the uh, first or second episode of Twin Peaks: The Return, where she Twin plays Peaks. Yeah. Uh, Daria, as I believe the character's name. Right. Interesting, sort of. She plays uh, opposite Kyle MacLachlan in that. Very, very good. Um, and in yeah. Matt's picture, absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, really carries it. But uh, now, so so, dur- so during the pandemic, they released this this you know Walmart DVD yeah. version of the movie with like the Capitol exploding and stuff. And Nicole called me and said, if you ever, if somehow, if a DVD of this movie ever lands in your hands and you put it in and turn it on, I guarantee you will die like the ring. Oh, You'll God. have a heart attack and just yeah, 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 yeah. fall to the floor. You'll <laughs> be so outraged uh at, w- at what happened that you'll you'll like you'll literally no, i die. can't i can't even imagine as as you know an artist and as a director a filmmaker um coming across something where they compromised your work so much so you so you just you don't even want to know anything about it i, uh, it's I can't like, i can't it's, it's like, like it's seeing like one of your children seeing you, your children you abducted and you know well let's we won't even go any further with jeez, that jeez jeez um but i say all that to say that i i didn't see the original cut well you know what maybe we could do yeah. if, if your listeners are interested in this is we can attach the original to your oh yeah there's a link, link that you can oh out. for yeah. sure 100 yeah. percent. we're not gonna get so sued you guys by uh <laughs> oh, no. uh i don't think they could sue their grandmother uh yeah, but yeah. we will we could we could attach that so people could see the actual well, real original that intent. that would be that would be ideal and i would i will of course watch it as well i mean basically as you kind of alluded to it's a it is. I'm trying to think of the right word because you know you say art film and and it calls to mind images of pretension. There's nothing pretentious about it, but it is an artistic statement, no doubt. It is a topical, thoughtful, uh, not a slow burn by any means because there is some intense stuff in it. Um, there's a rather intense waterboarding scene, etc. Obviously, the subject matter you can see how someone may misinterpret it or some terrible production company may try to make money by turning it into an Olympus has fallen style action flick but it is not that it is um how yeah how would you describe it it's a courtroom drama it's a courtroom drama of course i mean it's set in a courtroom and there's drama uh and um and joan does burn at the stake at the end only it's it's not a stake it's um it's a lethal injection injection, uh, chamber which that scene too is very very moving i always find uh executions on camera to be very (laughs) disturbing um but this is definitely this one definitely does not disappoint with regard to that it's uh it's quite the conclusion but i i get into this because while i didn't see it in 2017 2018 when it was released made and released um you know i saw it now and i would make that argument as i think i've already said that i think it's more relevant in some ways now um than it was at the time and that maybe audiences would be more ready for it sure i think probably in 2018 it, things were so tense in terms of what anyone was willing to talk about or think about mm-hmm with regard to the Trump administration and flyover country and nationalism and these kinds of issues. I think we are entering into a time in which people, I mean, there's still issues, no doubt. I'm not overly naive or optimistic 
Um, but I think people are more ready to kind of look on that, look back on that with their retrospective, like, okay, this is what, this is what was going on at that time. And like, you know, engage in more constructive thought on it. Uh, and also I think it's more relevant now and was in fact prescient of events like January 6th because of that sure. kind of type of nationalism thing you're talking about in 2017, early 2018, all anyone was thinking about was Charlottesville and Spencer and the Jews will not replace this well, thing. And that is not <laughs> Nicole Lidlipper. That is not no, Joey's character. No. I will just say what just I I don't, I don't want to clog up your um your your uh link for your podcast with this, but no, I saw an image the other day that made me really laugh out loud. That made me go, "Wow, you know, Joan really was. We were really right on the nose." Which is, I don't know if you've seen this, but Trump had a number one single on I don't know if it was on Spotify or. Hmm. What's the one that's kind of like Spotify? But Apple not, Music. Uh, uh, it's not Apple Music. What's the one that tells you what you like and it, and it gives you something else? Oh, um, Pandora? Pandora. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was on Pandora. And it's Trump plus a thing called the Jan 6 Choir. Yeah. So it's the it's it's these guys who are in jail for Jan 6, and every night they get together and they sing the Oh, Star I've not Spangler heard Banner. about this. <laughs> so, like Baked Alaska and people like that? <laughs> Baked Alaska. No, he got sprung this week. Oh, really? He got, you're more, he got you're sprung. The QAnon shaman got sprung. Mm. Uh, Chris Chan yeah. got sprung. So well, they all sprung. got sprung and other people are getting indicted. But some, <laughs> yeah. some Sixers are yeah. still in there, and yeah. every night they gather in a room and they sing the Star Spangled Banner. So some were lawyer recorded off the phone these guys singing the Star Spangled Banner and they sent it to Donald Trump and he recorded himself saying the Pledge of Allegiance. How did I miss this? <laughs> I, well, it was... Yeah. Uh, I guess it was kind of... Uh, it was not widely publicized. It was fringy. Or, uh, he was dealing with Stormy Daniels. Yeah. Uh, have to but, give it a listen and I will link it. But here's the yeah. thing. The, 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 the only reason that I mention this is the... Uh, if, you, if you look at Spotify or whatever, the, the little... Um, you know the page that has the song has a has a graphic on it that is a dungeon wall with like you know numbers scratched on it you know like one through five you know counting out the days yeah and then up at the top there's a window with the american flag crisscrossed by barbed wire and i was like oh my god this is like a saul bass poster for regarding the case of Joan of Arc, yeah. only it's coming from Trump and the Jan Sixers. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, we've really r- arrived at that moment where our movie is not science fiction anymore, it's just it, it is reality. And yeah, no, and again, I think especially, not to harp on this too much, but yeah, especially post-January 6th, the dynamics are much more in line with what you see there. It's really a yeah. certain flyover contingent that has this kind of do-or-die approach to things, and I think we're going to see, oh, listen, I don't want anything bad to happen. I'm not trying to wish any of this into existence. I just think as 2024 rolls around, Trump's indicted this week. Um, that guy got arrested for making a meme. I'm sure you heard about that. Um, yeah, that's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It's, unbel- it's a joke. I mean, people are really going to be arrested for jokes because they might interfere with uh, election behavior. Exactly. <laughs> I, if people don't know this, it's a guy who was arrested for Ricky making Vaughan. a joke yeah. meme saying, hey, Democrats, vote you know, vote text this week for Hillary, I think is yeah. literally what it said. Um, you know, I think most people with an IQ above a radish know that you can't vote by text. Maybe you vote that way for American Idol or something like that, yeah. but not for president. <laughs> so it seems like kind of an obvious gag. Um, and this guy's facing 10 years. 10 years. I mean, yeah, say what you want about Trump and... And this specific issue, but I mean, it's it, it is absolutely draconian. I think any reason. Well, it's absurd, and also that, yeah. there were there were other people that that uh, obviously people could 
Google this in two seconds. There's someone that said, um, made a meme saying, vote Trump with your text at one, two, three, yeah. four, five. No, people like do that. it all the time. It's something that, you know, you, you know, growing up, I would have had a reasonable assumption that, that you could engage in that kind of thing. And, and maybe at worst, get, you know, an account banned on something. Right. Um, but anyhow, not even to get too, it's a topical event, so it's worth talking yeah, yeah. about. But, but no, as, as these kind of things rank up, uh, as, as this, as the, the tensions rile back up heading into another election year next year, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I, you know, I, I think this kind of thing we see in the movie is, is more relevant, more relevant than ever. I think so. And I think now we're going to see, I, I mean, I, I'm interested to see what your take is on this, you know, because people back at the time we made the film, but, and up to now talk a lot about civil war and very clearly what a civil war might look like in America is certainly nothing like our first civil war right um but what would it look like i mean i wonder it, it, it has always seemed to me like uh for instance the mat the school shooting that just happened uh yeah. in tennessee that it's that sort of massacre with a message you know that that there's a, a possibility of that sort of thing yes, like sort of isolated yes. violence that has an ideological slant rather than two sides of people in 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 uniforms you know firing on each other yeah but, that it's a, a bit more like terrorist violence, and that's what in our Joan movie, um, you know, Joan gets her gets her followers to uh, to blow up federal buildings. Uh, um, they and and you know and not to harp on this too much, but you know they they talk Joan talks a lot about Waco and Ruby Ridge, right? And in the original, you know, we took French names out and put in Waco and Ruby Ridge because yeah. I think to these kind of militia people, movement people. Those are like holy sites to yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I, Trump, I think, in his campaign had a had a um, a rally at Waco recently. Did he? I yeah. mean, wow, I'm a little out of the loop. Which is a very fraught <laughs> space, but, yeah. particularly if you are in that QAnon adjacent kind of world where you see a lot of um, deep state conspiracies. I think um, that's that's kind of a a very fraught yeah. site. No, I think. Think we're going to be in for some uh what's the word hard rain's going to fall um i mean i just think it's you think so yeah well uh, listen i don't want that to be the case i just think that i i, I don't see my I, I don't even mean to to bring this conversation so much towards politics but i just think uh the, the mainstream media the you know the sides are not gonna there's no happy middle ground for the sides to meet on at this point and uh, I, i'm not um Fed posting here talking about civil war or anything, uh, but only to the extent that you were. I think we've been in a cold civil war for a long time, and I think that it's not going to be, yeah, as you said, not going to be like the last civil war, but what we might see more of is these kinds of isol relatively isolated incidents of people lashing out on both sides. Well, um, what, you know, one thing that I was talking to somebody about this last night, one thing that I find really strange is I think the kind of Politics that, that I saw as a young adult, let's say in the in the age of Clint, of Clinton and young Bush, which was you know the complaint at the time was always that politics were Pepsi versus Coke. It was the same yeah. thing on both sides. That's what got Ralph Nader, uh, you know, uh, uh, to rise for a moment. Ross Perot uh, came in in that way, and there was a feeling that everything was sort of the same. Now we're in a moment where that sort of corporate corporatist um, you know, uh, uh, I guess you could call it technocratic, uh, managerial kind of, of government is homeless. 
I think, you know, someone, you know, like Mitt Romney is sort of like this weird isolated character. You can't imagine somebody like John McCain or uh, uh, John Kerry, you know, these centrist, corporatist, you know, uh, the Trumpers would call them elitist, I guess. Yeah. Um, They have absolutely nowhere. There's there's nowhere for them. They and they have no public support. I think there's just the two the two far sides. Yeah. And I wonder why why you think that that may be at this particular moment. I think. Oh, why do I think that is? I think that it boils down to people's need for um, not to armchair psychologist sociologists here, but I think fundamentally it comes down for people's need for uh, meaning and a cause to fight for. The which relevant to Joan, absolutely uh, relevant. That's what makes a character like Joan in your movie so compelling and charismatic. Even if you don't agree with her politically, which I do think was one of your intentions, is to truly make a charismatic character that even if you find her politically reprehensible, you might see something in. Um, but I think there's a real the the, the the extreme sides can provide that in a way that the managerial establishmentarian class simply cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, the the issue with those um, Mitt Romney types. I would even put Biden in this category. You know, I think he's he's had to signal leftward, but he is definitely you know an establishmentarian, no doubt. And I think that um, the reason why I kind of lost my train of thought here, but but basically that. Um, What makes these people unappealing is that they don't offer that deeper sense of meaning to people, right. that deeper sense of struggle, um, which is a human need. And I think that's a fundamental. Many of them may be, and I'm not really a, a fan of Romney, certainly, or Biden, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, I don't think they're necessarily incompetent. Not totally, anyway. They're, mm-hmm. you know, Biden is handling things just fine in a certain sense. Um, you know, people would point to Afghanistan. Well, that probably was going to, you know, I think he's, he's managing things fine, but that's not all we want from politics that we want something that we can feel in our gut. Um, as you know, we want people who are competent, but we also want that sense of identity and that sense of meaning that can come from, it can come from nationalism, but it can also come from a, a more general kind of patriotism or sense of sense that your country is a role for good in the world, these kinds of things. And there's just been, after Iraq, after the 2008 crisis, there's just been the, you know, the establishment cannot provide that. Obama sort of did just by being who he is, which is, you know, a charismatic person. Um, but but following that, there's a real crisis of that, a crisis of faith, a crisis of sort of meaning amongst the people. And that's where you kind of have Trump step in. He provided that for a lot of people. Clinton couldn't do it so much um now the trouble with trump is that he i do think proved to be very incompetent in many many ways so you know ideally we'd have someone who's both competent but also provides a vision um yeah it is something it's it's something that's kind of weird i I kind of wonder if the right the new right the populist right in america has matured to a level where they would embrace somebody like desantis who was really about getting things accomplished uh legislatively and that they that they would choose him over someone like Trump, who's really about emoting and arm waving and uh, you know, kind of signaling a lot a lot of uh, emotion, attacking people. It's it's sort of like um, 
are your feelings more important than yeah than um your outcomes yes yeah. and i and i wonder where we are with that i do too i mean not even to give my definitive opinion on this but what you see a lot on on right-wing twitter and stuff is people who distrust DeSantis. they think he's actually deep down one of the establishmentarians so it's uh things are very fractured beyond a point where I, don't you think that's all switch. that's all just that's all trump disinformation quite possibly I mean that's that's yeah. him saving his own ass by by throwing DeSantis under the bus. Yeah, no, um, I, I've been a little tuned out of it, so I'd have to kind of sort through. But that's you think you think it's in that direction? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. people are going to say Ron DeSantis is like a, a, a commie or something. No, 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 no. Uh, that's, yeah, you know, because he's not Trump. Yeah, no, I have to do some more more soul searching, sort of myself politically about it, um, but. I mean, certainly that would be one solution is to have a, a much more moderating figure like DeSantis step in. Because, again, think I think... He's mo- you think he's moderating? He's pissing everybody off is, with his yeah. CRT. That's and true. Yeah. His Disney and... No. That's, I, that moderating in the sense of just simply not being Trump. No one enrages people like Trump. Um, and when I was talking earlier about hard, hard rain going to fall, et cetera, et cetera, um, I do think that is considerably worse under a Trump uh, nomination. Uh, regardless of the actual ideological issues. Because I think with regard to Trump, people, frankly, on both sides have kind of diverged from really thinking about... um, People on both sides have kind of uh, diverged from really thinking about the issues he represents and more just what he represents as like a meme, almost. Like, that's what rages people. That's what excites people. Because we live in a universe of memes. We live in a universe of memes, and memes can be very, very powerful. Um, Again, I don't really want to... Well, to go back to, to, to your work soon, <laughs> okay, uh, but this is all, all worthwhile. But I'll, the last thing I'll say is, um, so I don't want to give a definitive opinion on it, but when, when you mentioned, I, I hadn't heard about this, but, you know, I hadn't heard about either of these things, but, you know, Trump making the J6 choir video and possibly doing something with regard to Waco, um, DeSantis isn't going to do that. I don't think he's a moderate, but he's not going to do that. He's not going to symbol to signal to that really gut-level populist right thing. Right. Um, you know, and I, I'm I'm just a kind of work a day guy. For me, that's not an issue. But I can see how for someone like Joan in your movie, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, who's not by the way in the movie, she's not. Trump is president in the movie. You see his face on the wall. She is and not. She refers an, to him. She refers to him, and she expresses some optimism about him without being like she's not just a radical Trump supporter. She has her own thing sure. just to make that distinction. So I'm not saying that today she would be a total Trump sycophant. Either well, God um, is king. God he, is he's, king. He's yeah. just—he's like the Dauphin, you know. He's—he's, yeah. he's, um, yeah. you know, he's earthly power. So but. more like a more like a Kanye take. Just <laughs> mostly kidding, mostly <laughs> kidding. Um, but I do think there's there's an almost religious dimension. Not that people worship Trump, but that people see him as a the true vector of the. In many cases, it is Christian. This righteousness, um, and yeah, I mean, I think that Trump v. Biden could be contentious i think trump the versus desantis in the lead up will also be contentious um do you know okay let me ask yeah. you this i have this feeling that trump v biden would create an incredible exhaustion and despair in the american people. i can already feel that in my and, gut and, yeah. then, and then i think like a third a third party person could rise because yeah, i think Pulse the Gabbard or something i was yeah. gonna say the audience but the yeah. the, 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 po- the population would just look and say how did we get to this place where once again these two guys Going at it, this is all we have. Yeah. This is the best. No, we have. I, I mean that's that's part that par- partially hurt. I think Clinton in 2016 is that people are tired of the same names. 
Uh, I'm not sure if they'd necessarily be tired of Trump because he still represents this outside force, but people do get tired of it. I was And I was talking to someone the other day actually about how um, in so many ways Trump versus Biden, even the first time around, it's just such a such a letdown as a matchup, you know? Um, like Trump versus Clinton, perfect foils. You know, they represented very different things. Trump versus Biden, it's like Trump's got, or Biden's kind of got some things, <laughs> like that blue doggedness. And yeah, I mean, I look back, I look back on the election in 2016. Did not vote for Trump, by the way, um, in 2016. Um, I, I was a Clinton voter at the time. Um, but Voting for I, Bernie in the primary. Yeah, very good. <laughs> but <laughs> even, even, though my, even though at that time my candidate didn't win, um, I still look back on 2016 like, man, that was a spectacle. That was like the TV well, watching experience of my life. Yes. And 2020 is just this incredible, like, bad Well, we were also locked feeling. up and that, it was yeah, all it just, weird. But do you remember there was the thing, this is, so, this is when I knew America had gone mad, was when um, the thing that I thought, oh, man, this is the ultimate deal breaker for Trump. Was not. I, I, we're, we're going into Trump nostalgia. This is bad, but I'll just I'll just very quickly go into. We're one getting thing. out of the way at the top of the pod. That's, <laughs> yeah, but but just one thing. I remember. In, do you remember this? I think it was the second debate that Trump had with Hillary, where he was sort of lurching around behind her like Michael Myers in a Halloween yeah, movie. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Was, I think people did memes of it. Yeah, yeah. And he felt like this is so weird. Like he he really looks. This really looks like Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, it's not a good look for a president. And no one cared. And in fact, I think a lot of people actually kind of liked around. it. Yeah, kind of no, liked he, him physically menacing. Yeah, there's Hillary something Clinton. to the rules changed at some point, And I swear we'll get back to movies in a moment. But <laughs> the, the rules changed at a certain point, And all the things that were supposed to be unprofessional are now ways that you can break through. And there's been a considerable attempt to put a damper on that oh, excuse me, since 2016. But I, I do think we are still living in that universe where... Um, people who are willing to do and say outrageous things um, can can make a difference. And I think that's why some people were actually pretty freaked out about the Kanye thing, because I, I don't think that campaign is going anywhere. But for a second, it was like, you know, he's, he's doing it in a way that, similar to what Trump did, you know, just throwing the most ex- extreme radical stuff. No, Trump didn't do that exactly, but, you know, be- becoming such a spectacle that, you know, that you can kind of you can kind of break through by being a spectacle, in short. Right, but anyway. but he's he seems to me very clearly mentally ill. Yes, but I, wonder, I agree. I do agree for the record. But <laughs> but I think yeah. so, I think so many people in America now are mentally ill that he's judged on a kind of a different standard because it's assumed that I think everyone is kind of nuts. Yeah. So even though you're nuts, you can't say you're a Nazi. You know, you're not that nuts. Yeah, you're not that uh, nuts. But like we'd almost again to go back to my previous point, like. We'd almost rather have someone who's a little nuts than someone who is incredibly boring and does not have a vision. Right. Which is, I do think, kind of the issue with the Biden, but also an issue with the establishment Republicans, the uh, Mitch McConnells of the world. We're, we're over them. You know, politics is uh, entertainment now. And <laughs> anyway, uh, unless you have other thoughts. Um, we <laughs> well, no, anyway, I, I, think our, I, think our film, I think our film is interesting for a number of reasons. And one of them is that this kind of character who is... I mean, I think, you know, certainly Joan in our movie is a more idealistic and noble um, figure than most of these, you know, the Jan Sixers who you see who are mostly, like, pleading to get out, you know, like, I didn't mean it, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, She absolutely does mean it and will die for it. But the, the thing that to me was interesting in working on this film was that the intention, very clearly from the beginning, it was kind of like, uh, if people know the, the 1970 movie Patton, 
-hmm. with George C. Scott, which won Best Picture in his day, where Patton, you know, wrapping up World War II, is viewed in such a way, Francis Coppola wrote this script, which is a great script, uh, it's viewed in such a way where this, the Vietnam War hawks who saw the movie said, yeah, this guy is great. He's, no, this guy knows how to kick some ass. Yeah. We, we could use a few more guys like this. And at the same time, the peaceniks could watch this movie and say, what a brilliant picture of military psychosis, of, of the, ma the madness of this uh, uh, imperialist militaristic mind. Both of those things are absolutely in the movie, but the movie's not wishy-washy. It just contains just shows, the yin and yang. I think it just yeah. contains both yeah. of them at once. Um, and the character is absolutely both those things. And same in our movie, I think you could see this film and see it as a, a, a sort of a, a maybe, maybe a deadpan satire or a dissection of that kind of extreme nationalist character. But also I wanted to make it so that people who are that sort of uh, 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 extremist would see this movie and wipe away tears at the end of the movie. Yeah, and and hopefully both of those things coexist. Yeah, and I do. I can can vouch for it, having seen it. That I do cool. think it um it achieves that very much. And yeah, would love to be able to put the link to the proper sure. version of the film in. Um, before we move on from Joan, I don't know if you want to talk about. I can always cut this part out if if not. Uh, you have talked about trying to actually buy the rights back, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, proper release. Put it in its proper to, context. To be continued. Yeah. Well, it's just you know this film was released in a in a in a uh, bodlerized fashion uh, in 2020. It it does not represent the intention of the film at all, and I and I doubt that that version of it made much money. Um, so my intent is to go back and 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 um, and get the rights to the movie proper and and get it a proper release. Um, I think it's so uh, it's so potent now. Uh, I think so too, and I um, think people would really be into. Yeah, it. and like um, from the perspective of someone who dabbles in uh, sort of political Twitter, I think it's uh, very underrated by that group too. And I'm happy that I can put this podcast out and hopefully get more people to watch it. Great, um, because it's very much I think something that the corner of Twitter that this pod is going to go out to uh, are really going to like and appreciate. And yeah, maybe. Maybe you'll be getting even more uh, podcast invites, reviews. So <laughs> great. Like, put, help, help get it in the great, great. in the ether a little bit. But um, to back up a, a little bit, I guess, just um, you know, you you touched on your you know youth growing up in Illinois. I, I did want to touch on uh, that point you made about kind of growing up not just in suburbia, but it, it's like a deeper level than yeah. suburbia, where mm -hmm. it's that that blankness. Um, yeah, it's a thing I think we don't really have words for. It's um, and it's and, and you know if you've driven around the country a lot, you see quite a lot of this. Where you especially will go, post pandemic, it's kind of worsened. I haven't I haven't really driven yeah. around post pandemic, but I, but I know you know you go through let's say Oklahoma and you go you know a uh, hundred miles to the next rest stop, the next gas station, and a hundred miles of nothingness, and then bam, there's uh, an AMPM mini mart and um, I don't know maybe like a fast yeah. food joint or something like that. But there's this landscape of void peppered with big boxes. And that is really, it's, it's, it's funny, that is really how much, much, much of America lives. I mean, we both live together, we, not together, we live, <laughs> yeah. we live both in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that you realize when you live in a, in a, a city in America is something like, a mom-and-pop place, a mom-and-pop spaghetti shop, a mom-and-pop uh, bookstore 
is a luxury that you only have in cities. It's kind of like the reverse of the 20th century, where, you know, if you lived in the 20th century, you lived in a small town that had a little folksy shop or a a bar or something, and then you went to the big city and there were big things. Now it's sort of the reverse, where if you aren't in a city, you get this, uh, I guess you call it globalized consumer corporate big box culture that has no indigenousness. It has nothing... There's nothing specific to it. It's just it's the same in 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 South Dakota as it is in Maine, um, and that's the life of uh, of a lot of people. And that's something that, you know, when I was a kid, I, you know, Took I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think everybody has, you know, if you grow up in a in a small place, you have fantasies of escape. And you know, for me, it was New York. Yeah. I was a little kid. And, yeah, and I had right? a subscription yeah. to the Village Voice. Yeah. Uh, which you maybe. Young enough that you don't even remember the Village Voice. I know that what was it is, the, certainly. Yeah. It was it was a it was an alternative weekly yeah. in in New York that was, I mean it was it was the thing. I don't know what even an equivalent of it is now because we're in such a different landscape. Yeah. But um, Paulie yeah. Kale wrote for it. Paulie no. Kale wrote for the New Yorker. Right, right. But you know the yeah. New Yorker. Okay, so you know I read That's that it, as yeah. well and dreamt of those places, these iconic places yeah. in New York City where writers and artists went and and talked to one another. Um, that was something that really uh, pulled me through my youth was just that yeah. dreaming of, of, of going on going into the big city. Right. Now I think if, it feels as if everyone who lives in big cities is dreaming of escaping to it is some it is green. amazing that that reversal that has has happened over the course of the 20th into 21st century. There's other examples of that too not to go off on too many tangents but just even something like marriage like it used to be like the elites would kind of have their fun through their 20s and maybe settle down later um but now it's almost like i think jordan peterson is like like marriage is almost something that's only for the elites now only they can afford it Um, there's a lot of things like that like this kind of yearning back for a simpler life that used to be the stuff of relative economic you know non-privilege and now has made this uh, insane circle, but bracketing that because that's another kind of political angle. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely know what you mean and can relate, in fact, to that notion of wanting to go to New York. I've actually never lived in New York City, but kind of one thing, and I, I'm not from uh, a trailer park. But, you know, I was. I'm from suburbia, which is you know, there's there's a, there's a little bit of that blankness to that too. And yeah, from a young age, I sort of realized that my ticket to Better, not that my life was bad, but my ticket to indulging in my passions, shall we say, intellectually and artistically, was going to be to study, get into a good school. Later went to Cornell, later moved here. And, you know, you're, was that, did you kind of come to that conclusion at a young age, too, that, like, the path was going to be through school? Because I know you went to Yale. I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't even, I, I, it, it's funny when I look back on this stuff, it, 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 there was, it wasn't like a choice. I didn't feel like I had... Uh, you know, a fork in the road or anything like that. I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here, and I have to go somewhere. So what's the what's what? What does one do? Well, you go to the best school you can. I went to a, a high school that was very much about that. You know, in that time, that sort of you know get into a get into a good school, and um, I had a very strange experience with that in terms of my. It's one of those weird moments where you realize how your fate is determined. Yeah, I um, was. Uh, really wanted to go to Harvard. Really wanted to go to Harvard. And many people in my school went there. By one of my very best friends, the year ahead of me, went. And, and the school generally sent somebody there every year. 
Well, I found out from our college counselor in this school that her husband, who is uh, uh, the guy who ran John Nuveen, which was like the um, Goldman Sachs of Chicago, he was the CEO of this company, and he, you know, he was a big guy, and he and he donated a lot of money to uh, to Yale, and he got on the phone with some person at Harvard and said, "Okay, there's this kid in our school. He really wants to go to Harvard." And you know our our high school here we haven't had, we haven't sent anybody to Yale in years and years, so um, we think we'd like this guy to go there. Is there somebody that you'd like to trade us for, who's somebody who really wants to go to Yale? Uh, you know, so so one Harvard person and one Yale person were swapped. So I was in this swap. Oh man! And I didn't get in to Harvard, and I did get into Yale. Now. What would my life have been like if that guy hadn't had a weird hair up his ass to, to um, finally get somebody from his uh, uh, yeah. high school into this, into this college? What would my life have been? Would we be sitting here right now? Who knows? We, you I mean, know. listen, I don't know, people. Harvard's kind of the holy grail of these schools, but you know, Yale's no no schlub, and uh, and Yale is probably better for dramatic. Theaters. Yeah, I think for, yeah. for for things relating to art at that time. It was definitely the better place to I go. I think it probably still is, honestly. Uh, hard to say, but I don't know. But it's just one of those things where it's you one you, of those things. Yeah. You, you know, it's like sliding doors. You just realize in your life there are these moments where something happens that completely changes the the outcome of your life. Yeah. That's not in your control at all. Like if you had met this person a minute earlier or a minute later or whatever, you know. Um, butterfly effect a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And yeah, basically as you kind of said, you got your your first you were you you've been movie mad. Your whole life. Oh right? yeah, for sure. Um, but your first law or your first thing you were engaging in at Yale was theater, right? Well, it yeah. was in in the sense that um, I had a great encounter. Had had a great sort of teacher at a young age. It was uh, I don't know if your listeners know this guy, the, the opera and theater director Peter Sellers mm-hmm. with a, Sellers with an A S E L L A R S. He's a little man with tall, spiky hair, and he's an electrifying speaker. He's an mm-hmm. incredibly electrifying speaker. And he does uh, sort of contemporary set productions of classic works. And he did a, a, a lecture called Hitchcock and Design. And I saw this. I was working in the drama school library, and I saw this sign that said Hitchcock and Design. It's like, oh, cool. That sounds good. Oh, Peter Sellers, that little guy with the spiky hair who does weird theater productions. Okay, cool. So I went to see it, and it was really life-changing because he talked to the students about something that made so much sense to me and was so was really, really life-changing, which is he said, you guys all want to make movies. Well, it's going to take you years and years to go talk some guy into giving you $5 million and go make a movie, but um, you can do something absolutely great shatteringly great that people will remember for the rest of their lives. You can do it right now uh, on this sofa sitting out in front of your apartment Mm -hmm. with three friends for no money. For literally zero dollars. You can do Hamlet by William Shakespeare for zero bucks. And it will be fantastic. And it will rock people's worlds. And he said, do this and just do lots of it. Do every two weeks put on a different show, do a different play, do the Greeks, do Shakespeare, do Sam Shepard, do yeah. whatever, and just keep making things. Just keep making things. Keep making things. Just keep making them. 
Um, you'll find that some shows are great, some are terrible. Some will maybe have 10 minutes that are just absolutely sublime, and the rest sucks. But you are going to learn so much. You're yeah. going to learn so much about acting, about lighting, about, about decor. You're going to learn so much about everything. And, and you're going to create. You're not going to be one of these, you know, what our city of Los Angeles is filled with, people, people sitting somewhere in a job wishing they were creating something. Yeah, just, you're, just you're talking about things stuff. ad infinitum. Yeah. 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 And, and so I followed that, and it was an incredible lesson, uh, uh, an incredible gift. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. And I was going to bring this up more towards the end uh, as a kind of global reflection on your work in Hollywood, but maybe maybe now is the time because it to compare and contrast that, you know, the mm-hmm. you know, the the thrill of kind of do-it-yourself theater uh, with the way that Hollywood works, which is slow. People spend a lot of time talking about things mm-hmm. that never come into fruition. Um, it's also just an awful industry in so many ways. Uh, you know, it's it's we can talk about the woke stuff later, but e- but even outside of that, just um, you know, the, the it's very hard to it's very hard to actually get something made. And you know, a friend of yours, Brady Snellis, always talks about you know the development hell that things go through. Even things that you have the highest hopes for will just fall apart in the end. So it can be this incredibly disheartening um, industry, probably more so, much more so, obviously than than theater or do it yourself theater at least, but. Uh, not to blow too much smoke up your ass, but I do definitely see you as someone who has, and there's only so many people like this. You know, David Lynch is kind of this great example, but, you know, someone who has weathered the storm of the entertainment industry and actually been able to put out consistent good work, um, you know, for over a decade. I'm sure there's a lot of periods of time where you didn't have a lot going, but, you know, you've, you've kept at it and you, you've put good work out there. So what, um, I don't know if you have any advice or just general reflections on that, process sure I mean in terms of people who are just who are just starting to make things I mean I think there, there's a few if if I may just a few thoughts I have yeah that I think may be a value one is if I ever again taught a, a course in writing whatever writing whether screenwriting or or essay writing or anything um, it would focus on one thing which is uh, I don't know do you know the the novelist Otessa Moshfag? I do yeah, she's a great writer, and someone asked her in one of those dumb L.A. Times uh, interviews they have at the library downtown. They said to her, "What do you think is your greatest gift as a writer?" And she well. had the best. An- <laughs> yeah. she had the best yeah. answer. She said, "I finish." Yes. And and I've yes. talked to people about this a lot. If I taught a class, if I ta- let's say I taught a, like a undergrad class. It would be really about one thing. Okay, you've got an idea, all right? Let's say it's a short story. You have a short story, there's a boy, there's a dog, there's a car, there's a train, there's a truck, there's an accident, there's a heartwarming conclusion, whatever. You've got some notions of a story, uh, of some characters, of of an atmosphere. Okay, you have that. Here's what you're gonna do in 10 weeks. Finish. You're gonna start, you're gonna work on it, but most importantly, you're going to finish, yeah. which means you are that going to hit advice, the yeah. button, send. Now, what people are so dumb about and don't realize is that at that moment, when your screenplay hits send, let's say, it ain't over yeah. at all. It's only begun. It's all, just all you gotta barely do, all begun. All you got to do is have a good hook. <laughs> you, you, you know? you've, yeah. you've got this thing, and hopefully it's readable and, 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 and vivid and intense, and someone goes, oh, this is interesting. But... 
that ain't the whole story. That thing is not finished in that moment. Yeah, because if you're sending it to a teacher, especially, or you know, things can, especially screenplays revised up to the point, it's re, it's it's revised in the editing room almost. You know, a screenplay is just a you know backbone of what the, what a picture would later be. So, yeah, I think um, that's not that I'm not that I'm a brilliantly successful writer, but that's one one thing that I have found. You know, you draw strength from that will to bring it to its completion. It's 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 absolutely necessary. It's it's the yeah. muscle that you need to have to do anything else. You can learn how to get from Act Two to Act Three better later. You can learn how learn to write doing. snappy dialogue and you're not gonna, later. You're not really doing it if you're not completing anything. If you're not completing yeah. anything, you got nothing. You have just a bunch of pages in a notebook somewhere. Which may mean something to you, but that's that's not what you need. Absolutely. But I think it's also it's something about the the muscle and the deliberateness and the confidence of saying, now you can look at this. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean again, it doesn't mean it's written in marble for all of eternity. It just means I'm gonna show you this now, and you're gonna be able to read a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you're working in and that And it's form. so much easier like I edit as I go a lot of the time, which is fine but you can really get trapped in that because you know it's it's good to to present you know crafted work but um i really think that it's so much easier to edit something that's completed than it is something as you're going absolutely, um, absolutely. In, that, in that global sense anyway absolutely. like um it's easy to say like oh if i move this here and this here i'm gonna have to do this like that's all together if you're hanging up too much on the details um you know you could come up with with a brilliant fix to a certain problem and say your script but then it just doesn't work with the ending you had in mind. But if you have right. something complete, you can play that word Tetris. Well, I'll tell you, yeah. you know, uh, uh, I was talking to some folks that I'm working with today about this, about the notion of the tennis net. And I had a very, like, lightning bolt experience the first time that I got really hired to write something for somebody else. And it was for the, the um, if you know this guy, the British horror writer, Clive Barker. Yeah. And I was adapting one of Clive's plays into a movie. And it was my first time really working for another person. And, and, I, and I got paid. I got my first check. I wanted to frame it. And then I realized, okay, well, to get my second check, I have to actually finish this script. Well, when does it do? Eight weeks. Okay, well, eight weeks. So first I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just wait for, you know, for the muse to appear and hopefully yeah. in the next eight weeks could appear. And then I realized, no, shit, I, I, have, to, I have to get down to work. i got to actually finish this fucking thing and do it. So I had to divide eight weeks, uh, divide the script by eight weeks and figure out, okay, well, I'm going to do yeah. this part here. Then next week I'm going to do this. The following week this and so on. And, so, and then you broke it down further and every day – did a little bit of this, did a little bit of this, did a little bit of this. It was something where I went from what, how I think most writers work, which is you, you write when you have a good idea and you go, oh, wow, wouldn't it be cool if, yeah. and you grab your pen and, and go, versus something where, God damn it, you have to turn this fucking thing in by Thursday. So you have to figure out how to get it done by Thursday. And there was something about that having to chop it up and do it that that gave you a muscle in you that allowed you to you, do it I, yeah i find it allows you to do it allows you to bring it, you know to complete it but I, I find it can be helpful you know a lot of artistic types i am certainly of this cloth you know 
are overly analytical, get hung up too much on the details. And there's something about externalizing your work in that way, where it's all of a sudden a physical thing. You almost have to chisel like marble, where you can step outside of yourself in just the right amount to sure. actually do it. Um, sure. So that's, uh, yeah, that is an incredible quote from, from Otessa Moshfeg. And uh, I think it probably goes, you know, as much for screenwriting as anything. Sure, um, I think yeah. so. I mean, you know, I think it's so funny. It's, you know, it's so hard for people to finish. But, you know, particularly just in the realm of screenwriting, I think, you know, it, one thing that you can do is if you write five pages per day, you will, in a month, you will have a version, some version, of a script. You'll have, let's say, a 120-page script. Um, now, if you break that down, five pages in a day, what is five pages? Five pages is basically a scene. So forget pages and forget a, a computer. Sit with your roommate, sit with your girlfriend, and improvise a scene. You want to get 20 bucks out of her. First, you're going to scare her. Then you're going to flatter her. Then you're going to offer her a bottle of soda water for 20 bucks. And at the end, she almost gives it to you, then decides better and walks away. Okay? There's your scene. You have a scene. You want something. She doesn't want to give it to you. You push and pull back and forth. One person or the other wins. Okay? That's it. One of those a day. If you do one of those a day, not, not uh, improvising it, but actually writing it in words, you've done your work for the day. Now... I, it's really weird. I've talked to a lot of people about this, and um, people are yet totally paralyzed in being able to do that. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that is. I don't ever just really a have a considerable amount of self doubt. I think like, oh, this is is this really the story I want to tell? You just have to like throw that stuff out a little bit, and it's harder for some people than others. But yeah, but, but you got to do wondered, it. What, what, <laughs> yeah. what if? What if? What if you just go for it? I mean, what's, yeah. what, do you, what do you have what to lose? What do you lose? have to lose? I think what's, that's... What's, what's going to... You know, how yeah. bad can it be, really? Yeah. yeah. I think, though, that the, the feeling, though, the muscle memory of finishing is so important and allows you to get into the work. The muscle memory, yeah. It is, it is muscular. Like, yeah, it's like... Yeah, a, of just yeah. being able to say, here, I did this stuff, and now I'm you can letting so much it go into do the it again. I mean, I took way too many years to complete my first novel. Uh, but now that I have done that, um, I've been able to bring a lot of other things to completion. And yeah, I think it is muscle memory. Because yeah. Yeah. also, it's muscle memory, it's also like um, your reward system. Remember how how good it feels to complete something. Yeah. Even if you're, it's not that you complete something and you're 100% sure it's great. You know, you'd like to think it's the best version of what it could be, but you're not necessarily sure of that. You're just glad to have something. You know, uh, if it's a script, you know, with the brads in it, you can hand it to someone. Right. Um, you know, if you're lucky enough to actually publish something, like it's it's really it feels really good to do that, and that's what you got to keep right. chasing. And it does, you know, maybe it doesn't even hit it with a big audience, but you still have that, and you can go from there. Yeah, no. That's one. Well, if I could yeah. just add one, just one other thing yeah. to this is in terms of if people are sort of beginning writers, one thing that I really disagree with the norm about is you know if you read any of those uh, screenwriting books, they will tell you don't go in for any flowery description. Just write basic facts write the events just write the events and you know joe enters the room he fires a gun uh and the dialogue and that's it just you know they they're, they're always pulling for something to be terse hemingway-esque and my feeling is quite the contrary write some write it like you're writing a novel that you want hmm. someone to turn the pages and go oh my god now what 
So the voice, the narrating voice, the voice that's telling you that Joe is walking through the door with a gun should be seductive and um, compelling and vivid and juicy and make you want to turn the page. Because the fact is, to get a motion picture made, there are a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. Financier hoops, producer hoops, actor hoops, so many hoops. There's there's so many people that have to sign on, that have to read it and go, oh, I dig it, I dig it, I dig yeah. it. That you really need to um, turn it on for for those people and create something that you pops know, off heard, the page. I've heard that too, especially if you're sending out as a, like a first time writer, if it's a sample or something, you it needs to to have that caliber, you know. Um, but maybe you'd say it even in general. But I, mean, I think there's one thing if you're writing on an assignment, you got a deadline. You got to get the script, you know, the, the scene on the page. Obviously, you don't have to perseverate too much on like, oh, is this well written? But especially at that earliest stage, I think it's important to actually, yeah, the voice, as you said, that's because mm-hmm. that that counts in, in obviously in fiction writing that counts, but it really matters in screenwriting too, you know, to have have that voice because that's what people are gonna see, you know, sometimes even more than the plot itself is whether or not that voice comes through. Yeah, and I think it's also a way of conveying. Um, conveying the the not just the, it is conveying the narrative but it's also conveying the experience of the movie itself so yeah. that hopefully the tone. yeah you get to a place where reading this script is like popping a, a, a VHS in the machine and hitting play yeah that the, the screenplay is doing that, that where yeah. yeah you I mean like you know so many different people are good are uh, uh, Larry Karaszewski and his partner Scott Alexander are very good at this the Coen brothers are great at this yeah where you read the script and you go, oh my god, I, I feel like I'm literally watching the film unspool before my eyes. Yeah. Um, I think that's important. I think so, too. I think it's important. It is funny to me when you read a great, if you ever go back and read a great movie's script that is unreadable. If you ever look at the uh, Faber and Faber uh, edition of Goodfellas. Oh, really? Oh my God! It reads like it was written by like a six-year-old or something. I mean, it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's dreadful. It's completely flat. Yeah. Even the dialogue sounds sounds terrible. Um, and you see, the it's the most fluent movie ever made. Yeah. I mean, it's just absolute fluency from beginning right. to end. It's, it's not. It doesn't. The movie doesn't always match up to the screenplay. But you know, as a writer, your job is first and foremost to write a good screenplay right. yeah. and a shootable screenplay, of course. But a but a good screenplay, nonetheless. Um, I did want to sort of pedal a little bit through your work more. You mentioned okay. your first directorial debut, Your uh-huh. Name Here, from Your 2008, here. Yeah. Uh, which sounds very interesting to me. You mentioned it's um, a sort of play on um, Philip K. Dick mm-hmm. with a sort of with a pseudon, you know, a, a close to his name used in it, played by Bill, Bill Pullman. Um, but I've never seen this movie. Oh. Is it available anywhere? It's, well, it's, it's, it's hidden yeah. under a rock. This movie uh, has so many weird... Um, chains on it for you know first of all the the film was called panasonic which you know i bet some of your listeners probably know was the original title that don delillo had for white noise right yeah and someone from panasonic wrote don delillo a letter and said hey buddy you can't call your novel panasonic i don't know why they would object to that um his notion was that it, it means all sounds at once, which is like a kind of schizophrenia, which he obviously captures very well in the book. Not so much in the movie, but in the book. Um, so I thought, wow, Don DeLillo has this great title that he's not using 
because he it was it was shelved for whatever I didn't know that was why um, so let's call it Panasonic so we did and when we started casting the movie like literally this is like in the dawn of the internet casting notices that went out to like three small towns in the valley yeah in the 818 yeah the next day dear sir this is the Panasonic Corporation. <laughs> you may not well, use our they, name in the title of your yeah, movie. They're they're on top of things apparently. They, they were like a, they were slash are like a, just an electronics company, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, but they're huge, right? I mean, they're yeah, still huge. I guess so. I think they, I, I'm trying to think what they even make. It's yeah, they make boom boxes and yeah. Walkmans <laughs> and you know, well, those <laughs> are of, those are of my like, era. But yeah. I think they still have speakers. Maybe tooth- do they make toothbrushes now? Electronic toothbrushes, maybe. Really need to hear smartphones. Earlier. Maybe I don't, I'm, I don't not know. good ones. <laughs> no, probably not good. Anyhow, ones. Uh, but they're they're still they're still a thing. Anyway, the the film became titled "Your Name Here," which the notion was: imagine a real biopic, like Cleopatra or Nixon, but in this case, it's "Your Name Here," so it's it's a biopic of someone with no identity. It's like it, the movie could have been called Blank or Untitled or some. you know, you have a big picture of Bill Pullman and then Untitled, you know, something like that. Or no, you just not have a title um, because it's about that this slippage of, of, uh, of identity. And it's about this character, Bill Frick, who's obviously based on Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. who was in real life was a real train wreck. He was, he, you know, was a drug fiend. He lived uh, uh, with these bikers uh, um, in this in this house, I think like in, in, in Oakland maybe? No, it was in Orange County. Um, he had the IRS after him. He had all these ex-wives. And yet he wrote this incredible, ecstatic, visionary fiction about the future. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I, you know, I think about Philip K. Dick all the time is that he captured one thing about the dystopia that we're living in that no other writer captured, which is that it would be really janky. It would be really low rent. I grew up with really beautiful, elegant, dystopian uh, fictions like t- George Lucas's THX 1138, where everything is set in this, yeah. like an Apple store, this beautiful, white, icy, totalitarian world, or um, 2001, which I, you know, I think has some sort of terror. You know, it's funny, but also terrifying in some ways. Yeah. But very elegant. But very beautiful. In a Kubrickian yeah. way. Yeah. But Philip K. Dick really had the notion that the future would be like an almost out of business Radio Shack. That everything that that the the fascists, the, the devices right, they yeah. strap on your body <laughs> yeah. are not going to be these elegant, cool things. They're going to be like the sort of crummy version you'd buy at Kmart. And then and and by extension the notion that the whole um, sort of authoritarian fabric would be shabby. Yeah. That this is a shabby world. It's not. Um, uh, it's not an all-seeing, all-knowing world. It has all the sort of frailties and foibles of our world with human the technology world. amped up. But then, right, you see you, that decay. Of, I actually have not read much Philip K. Dick, so I'm just kind of extemporizing here. But the decay of that technology, you see, just as much. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think it's the extension. It's the extension of the person. You know, Cronenberg um, talks a lot about that. Of technology yeah. as an extension of the body. And I think Philip K. Dick portrays it as an extension of the sort of the shabbiness of the soul. Um, it's a world of, 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 of marketing guys and sales uh, representatives more than it is of fascist superheroes. You yeah. know? It really is a world of, of um, hucksters. Mm-hmm. 
And that, to me, feels very, very, uh, very appropriate to now. Very appropriate to now. And um, just to make a random connection here, uh, another writer I feel like delved into that a little bit is William S. Burroughs with some of his more technological writing. I only bring Burroughs up because I think I haven't seen your name here, but from what I've read about it, a good comparison is like this is the Cronenberg, and you also mentioned Cronenberg, Cronenberg's Naked Lunch is to Burroughs as your film is. Slash very slash much so. Yeah. Naked Lunch, Cronenberg's Naked Lunch was very much an inspiration on our movie. And the thing that's that's kind of fun, I think, in your name here is it's it's about a guy who who keeps he keeps passing out and waking up. And he'll pass out and wake up in the middle of a world where William J. Frick is is the god everywhere that he, everywhere he walks, there's statues of him everywhere and yeah. posters and people pray to him as a god. Then someone conks him on the head, he wakes up somewhere else, and He's hunted by everyone on Earth. He's he's being dragged into a gulag because he's the most dangerous man on Earth, and it's it's a world of fantasies, and we can't quite separate the fantasy um, from from the reality. We can't quite separate the fiction from the real life, and there's a feeling of of there being sort of an infinite number of Russian dolls. Uh, that he inhabits yeah. and that we, and that we inhabit as well uh, and there's a great there's a there's kind of a, a, a strange melancholy to the movie I think you know I, I, I don't remember how much we talked about this but Bill Pullman who is really really sublime in this movie yeah. um, is a little bit of a sort of futuristic Buster Keaton there's a feeling of that sort of the, the poker face but but with a sort of wistfulness to him um, which is how uh, this Bill Frick character navigates the universe. So the the problem with this picture was every time it it, it played uh, it played in a festival and Bill Pullman won an, uh, an award yeah. for it, and then every time someone would try to buy this movie, the Philip K. Dick estate would would come flying out and would bomb these little you know micro distributors that wanted to buy the movie and say if you buy this movie we'll sue you. Um, and they just have a whole lot of money. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of maybe, the rock it finds itself under now. Yeah, that's the rock. But maybe uh, there's a you know. Is it a bill maybe one of your listeners knows a way that we can yeah. get out from under this rock? Because I would love to, yeah. to get that out. there. My normal co-host is a lawyer, so <laughs> I will literally bring this up with him. But um, it's, it's literally you can't you just can't watch it right now. Can't. I mean, yeah. I could smuggle I would love to it to you. It. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe follow up sub, later. Sub yeah. Rosa. Sub Rosa. Yeah. yeah. Terrible shame, um, and it really does sound like a striking picture. It's a groovy, um, yeah, yeah, it's a groovy film. Great cast. Um, I suppose we'd be remiss not to talk about Dog Eat Dog a little bit. I mean, this dog is pr- in some ways, would you say probably your best known? Yeah, film oh, sure. You didn't direct it; it was Schrader, which Paul Schrader. You know, that's a quite a notch in your belt in and of itself that you <laughs> wrote a script for Schrader. Um, but it's it's a also actually available on Tubi now uh, in a less bastardized version than Joan. Uh, you know the normal version, as it were. Um, it is a very, very funny movie. I mean, it's very much, it's like a, it's a, a kind of a comedic uh, mobster heist movie, so to speak. Uh, you know, it's funny. It was written to be a, an LA noir. It's it's based on a novel by Eddie Bunker, who right. people may know is uh, he's one of the Reservoir Dogs at the beginning. Yes. He's the guy with the mustache who gets blown away in the heist. And Eddie Bunker is probably America's greatest prison novelist. He wrote a book called No Beast So Fierce that became the movie Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman that is a great account of a guy who spent a lot of time in prison and gets out 
and doesn't know how to deal with straight life in the real world. Having a job, going to bed, getting up, you know, having a girlfriend. All those things he doesn't really know how to deal with it. That movie, Straight Time, it's fantastic. Dustin Hoffman plays the guy. Yeah. And it's weird because you don't think of Dustin Hoffman as a white trash criminal, but he's perfect. He does it well, yeah. His best friend is Harry Dean Stanton, who's amazing in the movie. Oh, of course. Uh, he's not, Harry Dean Stanton, what I say about Harry Dean Stanton is um, he's in so many movies, and I, I, there's probably, I'm probably wrong about this because I haven't seen them all, but I've never seen a Harry Dean Stanton movie I didn't like. Even if he was just in, like, a couple frames. Well, never he's seen a Harry a, Dean performance you didn't like. I can't think of way? a bad movie, but what, what's what's a bad... Well, I haven't, pre- I've maybe seen... Pretty in Pink. I'm not going to stand oh. up for that one, but, uh, you know... Ah, Gosh, there's a been few, so long. but whatever. Anyway. But he's great. Well, oh, yes, I'll, 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 I'll he's, say that. He's, he's always he's great. He's always great. He was a, a compadre of Jack Nicholson, who I think through Jack eventually got, you know, he worked forever and ever and ever and slowly got known. Uh, his first big moment was in Paris, Texas, Vin Bender's Paris, Texas, where he's the lead. He was great. Anyway, he and Hoffman are the two dudes in Straight Time. Terrific picture of criminal life. Um, how hard it is to stay away from the criminal life once you are a criminal. Um, Eddie Bunker was a brilliant guy. He was this amazing kid. He lived in L.A. He was in and out of juvenile halls as a kid. He, he, he would romance these sort of older women and, got, and hung out with William Randolph Hearst. But then he would get pinched for for rob for burgling someone's house and would go back into juvenile hall for years. Uh, eventually, he went into prison, and yet he was a real literary mind, and he wrote tons. He wrote memoirs. He wrote novels, and he eventually connected with the novelist William Styron, who uh, people may know from Sophie's Choice. Mm-hmm. Um, Styron wrote a letter to the warden. And one day, Eddie Bunker, who who was was not a not a super tough guy, writing in his room, you know, writing in his cell, tapping away at the typewriter, and one day the guard came and opened the door and said, uh, "You're free to go." And that was the end of his uh, prison career. So he wrote this novel, Doggy Dog, which is about uh, three guys who have done a lot of time together, and they are doing their one last score. Yeah. It's a one last score movie. Now, the funny thing about this movie is I wrote this. I wrote this for myself to direct. The producer at the time did, didn't it, it didn't get enough traction with me directing it fast enough. So, he disappeared for a moment. And one day I was walking down the street and I got a phone call from a number I didn't recognize of this guy going Matthew Wilder, this is Paul Schrader. I'm, <laughs> I'm directing your movie. Oh, wow. So I thought, well, kind of a drag that I'm not directing it. But if someone else is directing it... He's not the worst. Right? I, I would, yeah. you know, put him right at the top. So that film was a very good experience on all levels. But one one thing that was really nice about it was there was a, it, it was an interesting change. I had come from theater, and I had directed people's, like, like for instance, new scripts, people who were writing premieres, new, new, new plays. And sometimes those people didn't like kind of what you would do as an interpreter of, of their text, the way that the, the way that you staged it or the way the set looked or whatever it may be. Schrader made a real change in the movie, not in the text. He really didn't change, 
anything in the text, really, hardly anything. It was the movie was set in L.A., but it was ultimately shot in Ohio, so there were some Ohio references. Yeah. But other than that, really nothing. But the tone, if you read the original Doggy Dog script, is a gritty, downbeat, uh, '70s style crime movie, kind of like if people know the Nickel Ride mm-hmm. uh, that Eric Roth wrote. Or Jackie Brown, oh, yeah. kind of. Yeah. Um, Friends of Eddie Coyle. You know, oh, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. 70s, you Bullet. know, a gritty 70s <laughs> yeah. crime movie. Yeah. Now, Schrader's take on this was he invented the 70s. So he didn't have to go down that road anymore. I don't, yeah. he didn't have to, I don't have to go do a 70s movie. I did those already. So he wanted to do something different and do something playful, I think, somewhere kind of between. Natural Born Killers and Godard. I do almost see it as a comedy, which may not have been your original intent. There's hilarious parts, There's though. There's funny yeah. stuff in the script, but, I mean, um, he took it to a to a degree where, you know, there's it, it, this all, it seemed almost inevitable. There's a scene where the three guys get high, and they're in a hotel room, horse playing, and, and one of them, I think, uh, Cage, squirts ketchup bottles on the other ones and squirts ketchup on the wall. And that, to me, seemed like it was sort of Schrader's comment on the violence in this movie is not really violence in this movie. Yeah, it's cinematic. Uh, it's, yeah. squirting, it's squirting ketchup bottles on a wall. I think the part that made... Yeah, no, I can see that for sure. And I think the part that made me laugh the hardest was actually... I'm sure this wasn't, you know, in the original script and, and perhaps supposed to be funny, but when Nick Cage's character is uh, with the prostitute and he just wants to talk about going to uh, Cannes, right? Or <laughs> talk about going to Cannes, yeah. Uh, very funny. Well, we should add, um, for people who haven't seen it, don't know about the movie, it is Nick Cage playing opposite Willem Dafoe. Um, Christopher Matthew Cook, also worth mentioning it, who's also in Joan. Who's also in Joan. Um, yeah. And they do they do make a pretty pretty good uh, pretty good ensemble cast. Almost, they're, yeah. they're great. And we should also talk about... Um, Louisa Krauss, who's in that movie, mm. who plays... Uh, it's my favorite scene. And actually, some people, some critics who don't like the don't like the movie, like Amy Taubin, talked about how this was the best scene, which is um, Louisa plays a woman who meets... And these, this stuff, these scenes are not in the, in the original novel. She plays a woman who meets um, Chris Cook's character. He's sort of like the, 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 yes. the heavy, oh, the was, tough guy. This is one of the best scenes, no doubt. Yeah. And she meets him in a bar... In a, in a casino and he takes her up to his room and and it's it's all going well for him but she starts asking him these questions like oh what you know what kind of music do you listen to and he says I, I don't listen to music and she goes well you know where do you go to hang out and, he, and he's like I don't hang out and <laughs> she asks him <laughs> yeah well like uh, who are your you know who are your friends and and, and he's like I don't fucking have friends yeah, and he yeah. kind of explodes and there's a just a little, like a little flash of anger, and it scares her the fuck out of the room. She's like, "Okay, I have to go now," and she goes and gets out and 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 says, "I don't feel safe." And, yeah. And, and and escapes. And he comes out, and Chris Chris Cook, who's a big bruiser of a dude, comes out and is is like Woody Allen, you know, chasing her down a hallway, yeah. like, "Wait, wait, wait, no, 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 come on, the yeah, no, come come back, come I back. was moved by it's that. Very, I think uh, it is very moving. You know, and it's, I can really put myself in his shoes, and given his performance, he's this guy who comes out of jail. He's rough around the edges, but he really he does want that connection. He does want that human connection, female connection. Obviously, it's sexual, but it's not lascivious. It's he just wants that connection, and 
can't can't achieve it. It's um, and then of course how the movie ends. <laughs> yeah. Well, he you know he's just he's enraged because. I think he says something to her like, you know, I've spent I've spent years like living in a garbage can. Yeah, I don't yeah. Know, and I don't know what you're talking about. And he's embarrassed. He's yeah. embarrassed by the fact that she's asking him, "Oh, what do you think about that Taylor Swift song?" Or something. Yeah, you yeah, know. And he yeah. doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about. Yeah, because no. he's been in a it's, cage for a long. You mentioned time. that Bunker, you know, who wrote the novel, but actually, you said that that scene is not in the novel, even. No, it isn't. So, but you, but still, picking up on that theme of Bunker being. One of the great, you know, prison and post-prison novelists. It's a very particular state of mind, and um, you know, this movie, Doggy Dog, really, really captures that for someone like me, who obviously has no uh, experience with it. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I did want to ask just a little bit. Paul Schrader, you know, you I ma- imagine was a was a was he a fil- long before you worked with him, he was a filmmaker you admired. Oh, I mean, yeah. that, that's how could he not he, be? Right? He's but, he yeah. he was for me number one. I mean, that, you know, of of people have their screenwriting heroes and and there's people that like Robert Town and people like William Goldman but to me Schrader was always the most interesting he was the most formally daring of anyone and also he had he had a new idea which was what what he calls the monocular movie the one-eyed movie which is in a way it's like a sort of like film as monologue in a way it's it's following one person and it's really about the war between that one person and himself more than it is about a, yeah, a character yeah. versus a, a, an antagonist. The antagonist is himself. Exactly. That's Taxi Driver. That's Mishima. It's, it's even American Gigolo. I think. Yeah. Um, it's all of his movies, which is incredible. You know, he's obviously... I love an artist. I like people who do different things, but I really like an artist who is obviously fixated on one issue. And um, everything right up to this new Trader movie, which I haven't seen, but I think it comes into theaters in, like, May... Yes, yeah, what's terrific. it called? Master Gardener. Master uh, Gardener. You've seen it. Yeah, yeah. Um, seems like it, he always tells that same story, and I absolutely love it. Like I think, it, kind of as I was saying with Joan earlier, it's like, like yeah, Taxi Driver was very relevant in the '70s and to the '70s, but I think this Schrader narrative um, continues to be really vital. Um, in a similar way, we're talking about Joan. It just that type of character, um, and I. I've written about this elsewhere. I think it's really reductive to call it like an incel type character because it's not. It's you know people. It's not just people who. It's who weird can't that people think Schrader characters are incels now. Like, I find that yeah, hilarious. Yeah. It's no, like, I mean, uh, I, see, I Bickle, just view them yeah. as more grand, I guess. Than, Much more than that. grand. You know, Bickle, Travis Bickle, and Taxi Driver come the closest to sort of being someone who seems to sort of not be able to get laid. But most of his characters aren't that at all. Most of his characters are. You know, some of them are maybe not having sex for some reason. But what's important isn't that, isn't that, isn't simply that they are maybe not having sex or that they're sexually frustrated, but that that sexual frustration goes to a much deeper place and and cause and it's a, it's a, like a portal for them to a greater dissatisfaction with the world and a greater desire um, to, to fix it or to do to strike out against it in some way, often in a very like morally. Um, above Broadway, or sometimes not, certainly. But even in like Mishima, which is a great example. Obviously, this is a real person, Yukio Mishima. Uh, but there too, you know, he's gay and a and not openly so, and has all these sexual issues. But rather than just simply being, oh, I need to find out how to have the right kind of sex to be happy, it's you know, standing up in front of the uh, Japanese military and making a statement. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's that sexual, the the, the incel thing or the Volsell thing, the sexual frustration is an entry point, but the the issue with the world that the characters ultimately that the characters ultimately take um, goes so much deeper than that, mm-hmm. and then is resolved in a way that I think sort of mirrors the sexual process. There's something kind of 
orgasmic about that violence. Um, mm-hmm. And then it sort of, con- I don't know, every, almost every Schrader, not Dog Eat Dog, because that's your script, but, but everything that Schrader writes um, seems to follow that path. Yeah, no, it does. That's why I'm always, you know, I'm interested in some of his, uh, some of his outlying movies. I really like his movie about Patty Hearst. I haven't seen it, um, actually, yeah. Which spends, it, it, it's, it's uh, maybe this is, uh, Nick Kazan wrote the script. Uh, I'm sure Paul polished it. But, um, but it has a great sequence where Patty Hearst spends 20 minutes in a closet. And you're in the closet with her with the blindfold on. Um, not just in the dark, but you're with her and she remembers things and sees things, imagines things. Um, she imagines what's going on. She imagines moments of her past and as you see her in the past she's walking around with a blindfold on it's it's fantastic it's yeah. a very daring very daring movie also a one-eyed movie um but i think different yeah different from a lot of the others and joan um in so many ways is a monocular movie wouldn't you agree i mean it's oh, yeah. um very much so. yeah it doesn't quite have that paul you know the i guess the paul more paul schrader-esque version would have her escape but obviously that was not true to the story <laughs> uh instead she she is more the victim well, depending how you look at it, but uh, yeah, but, you know, I, she's, I, a, she's a Schrader-esque character, is the point. I think so. Yeah. You know, well, actually, what I what I think of our Joan, and I think this is um, Nicole, uh, who plays Joan, I think is is someone who is I think right now is a little bit misunderstood by the industry in the sense that she's she's a redhead, and I think uh, people view her as this as uh, they view her as kind of a hippie, and she gets cast in these sort of hippie parts. Yeah. Um, she has a nice part if people are watching uh, Daisy Jones and the Six which I think mm-hmm. is pretty popular now that Amazon series she plays Riley Keough's mom yeah. and is sort of an evil mom dressed in a very Mad Men era kind of, kind of way which is closer I think to the real Nicole but yeah. Nicole to me is very much a Hitchcock blonde even yeah. though she's not blonde um, she is very much in that mode of Tippi Hedren of Grace Kelly yeah. and Eva Marie Saint and that um, seductive coolness that you can't read you can't quite make her out there's a sphinx like quality to her but you you keep wanting to know what's up you want to know what's going on there it's not like you're getting a, a brick wall you're getting something that you can't read but you really want to read it you're pulled towards deciphering it um that's what I think makes her so interesting in this movie, and it and it's it makes the scenes I think with the judges kind of dramatic because um, even when she's answering their questions very truthfully, she isn't in a yeah. certain way. There's you feel like she's holding back something. Yeah, that, no, definitely that they're not getting. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible. I do think there's something kind of in the water about that monocular sort of hero and, and also just kind of the that Schrader narrative in general. I, d- I did want to ask if you'd seen that movie Spree that Eugene Kolarenko directed. No, I haven't seen his films. Yeah. How are they? They're good. Yeah, yeah. I love Wobble Palace. Um, yeah. I think that one's very sort of funny and out there. Spree was kind of, a, I guess, a somewhat more buttoned-down sort of um, type of movie. But Wobble Palace being a much more kind of indie, weird comedy fair and spree is also pretty bizarre actually but it's it's very much in that taxi driver kind of taxi driver very taxi driver obviously that movie joker uh was on a much more mainstream basis and there's also this movie that i just saw you know hadrian belov right very well yeah i figured you might um we can talk about that later but like um he he recently screened i actually wasn't there but someone sort of looped me in um this movie bolt driver i saw this movie bolt driver so 
a, a colleague of mine, Rainy Qualley, is in that oh, movie. Oh, yeah, played, the younger sister Rain, of... Uh, Rain, yeah, yeah, and Rainy plays Sybil uh, Shepherd. And I was like, what? How did this guy... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think he got. I think they shot the, some of the film in 2016 because oh, she's yeah, working yeah, yeah. In, a, in, a, in a a Trump, Trump headquarters. Yeah, headquarters. Yeah, um, which to me was weird. Like, what does it mean that you take Betsy from Taxi Driver and put her in a Trump headquarters? That's oh, it's a. Odd. I think it's a great. I mean, do you you like Bull Driver? You thought it was good? Or? Uh, no, I thought it was terrible. Really? Actually. Yeah, I don't like these things that are like. Too, too much of a paraphrase shot, Well, no, yeah. just I don't like things that are shot on an iPhone and they look like they were cut on an iPhone and they have that just kind of YouTube junkiness to it. They have that kind of crappy, yeah. cruddy texture. Uh, it's definitely a movie that's kind of meant to be, I think, in the fabric. You're not, it's, not, it's not a movie meant to be played on a screen. It's a movie meant to be open in one tab while you have YouTube in another. So. That's, how, that's how I did it. And I actually yeah. fast-forwarded through a bunch of it. Um, but you got you know it's certain scenes at least I was trying like they're Ra- Rainy Quelly as 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 a as well a tr- she's incredible as a yeah as, I mean she's incredible and that's yeah. the last thing I ever imagined seeing her see. yeah I just want to know how that guy bamboozled her into doing that movie that was the most, uh, that was like to me like that's what you were like, thinking Rainy, about what yeah you, what are you doing up there kid yeah well we won't drag drag Bull Driver too much I just want I do I do think there's something kind of in the water about. Um, no, I'm glad you dig it. I know yeah. Adrian digs it. He wrote a whole essay on it. I oh, yeah. You, you, I was going to actually bring this up. Kind of off the air, but why not on the air? Uh, you subscribe to the Carousel now, I saw. The, yeah. Saw, yeah. That, that's a propaganda guy? What, yeah, yeah. Isaac, Isaac Simpson. Isaac Simpson, I, right. He's a friend of mine. Oh, cool. I told him about you, how I was doing this podcast with oh, you. Cool. Um, I don't know if he'll... I don't know if you'd want to like do one with him or whatever. I don't know, but like he's, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a cool guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we so love I can, him. I'd be happy to like make the intro. Yeah, I love it. But no, he's got a great great site going and he, he knows Hadria you know it's a small world here yeah, connecting yeah. dots but uh but yeah yeah he's great um, but it's good to know that Eugene guys films are good because I haven't watched them I yet. think they're good I mean if you don't like Bolt Drive I mean it's a little bit like that maybe so I mean you may hate them but I think you know, there's something yeah well the Bolt Drive thing to me was just like okay so what you're gonna take you're gonna like literally I, it seemed almost like it was a parody of Joker it's like you're gonna remake Taxi Driver set in 2016 yeah. with Uber yeah <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> like a what like, yeah. do you have? Is there a further idea here? But okay, yeah. I, if on, on your say so, I'll I'll give it another look. Yeah, that or or, or watch Eugene's films or if you know, if you're watching Eugene's films, I would start with Wobble Palace. Yeah, because I could imagine that's the one you, with Dasha. That's the one with Dasha. Yeah, I could imagine you you know spree maybe a little in that Bolt Driver car- uh, territory. Yeah. But Wobble Palace, I think, is very funny um, and very and unlike any other movie I've ever seen. And I cool. think I believe it's on Amazon or something. If you have that, so cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, other movie that you have a credit on, I think it's just a rewriting credit, so I will not dwell on it too much, but it's Looking Glass yeah. 2018, also with Nick Cage. And again, don't want to dwell on it too much, because it is just a rewriting credit, right? That wasn't your original. Well, it was a lot. Was I a, mean, yeah. I this is a movie, if people have seen it, it's it's the director is somebody I love, Tim Hunter. Yes, he's a I'm wonderful a director, too, yeah. director of Raver's Edge, and he's done tons of... Uh, Really good TVs, a madman. Oh, he's done some of the best TV, and even TV that like people wouldn't cite in the pantheon of like, but just like, yeah, memorable. He, I'm, I'm thinking about the he did the pilot of 90210, which is something, you know. Which is yeah, (laughs) Yeah. which I know he, he likes that. Um, Tim's a really good guy, and the producer of uh, Looking Glass is a really good guy, Braxton Pope, Mm -hmm. who I think is producing Dasha's next movie, Total War, which is an amazing, yeah, uh, amazing movie. but Braxton is a good guy, and I, I worked on this movie for a long time. There was a guy that they <laughs> they had in this movie. It's a film, Nick Cage is in it, and it's about 
this case of a motel in Vegas, or not, I guess outside of Vegas, somewhere in Nevada, Desert. Yeah. Um, that supposedly had sort of like hidden peepholes and places where voyeurs could poke their eyes in and see the goings-on in this motel. So there was an original script that I thought was really bad. And then I was brought in to touch up this script and, and did a version I thought was really good. And, and uh, Tim Hunter liked it and, and, and uh, Braxton liked it. And then Cage was, I think, not so into it because he would have had to relearn a lot of stuff. And it was just sort of starting over from scratch. And I think he was just kind of not, not that into it. But then I was brought in. There was a guy who was going to do this movie who was going to put money into the movie. And so I was writing things for him to do. And God bless him, Braxton called me 96 times and paid me 96 times to write stuff for this dude. So I wrote this scene. I wrote that scene. I wrote a scene about an elephant. I wrote a scene about this and about that. Um, And none of it stuck. So very little of the stuff that... and And I wrote pages for this movie for eons. And very little of it, stu- I, I think there's hardly any of it that's left in the movie, but very kindly, um, because so much of it didn't stick, Braxton got me an EP credit on the movie, nice. which was very yeah. nice for all the work having done, even though most of that work didn't didn't stick to the movie. Um, You're still kind so of blonde off guy. the project. Yeah, yeah no, so it's um, just another, it's, you know. Yeah, and Bra- Braxton uh, is, is dead. I've never met him. Um, I would like to at some point, but he... Um, um, on Braxton, he he also produced a lot of Brett's films, Brett, uh, Brett, mm-hmm. or films that Brett Easton Ellis has uh, yeah. different credits on. There's yeah. a thing. There's a thing that Brett did with Braxton that is so great that I, I I feel like it's like somewhere out there in the internet. I think Brett put this on his like the podcast blog or something. Yeah. There's a thing that he did for this app called the Deleted, right? Wildspeak called called the Deleted. Yeah. And I saw it. I saw it with Braxton before I before right before I actually I had met Brett. I saw it all. It's like a, it was like a bunch of sort of like web series sized shorts, but it, they 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 showed them all together at, as one, and it was kind of like a feature. Yeah, and it's a fantastic. It is thing. good. I saw it. it's no longer available. I don't think. But I when I first moved to LA, I was you know kind of really into Brett Brett stuff, and I was like I got to see everything. And wild screen or whatever the fuck it was called was still up at that time, so I did a little free trial and, and I did see it, and it is—it's really well done. It's kind of that less than zero energy. Um, it's cast with a lot of influencers, which is kind of this random thing. Um, but yeah, it's like very kind of like the canyons too. It just feels very of that time in a in a way that's that's. Well, cool. yeah. I liked it because I felt like it was it was as if he sort of pulled out most of the narrative elements, and it was just the things. That he fetishizes and obsesses over. It was these te- hot teens yeah. and cocaine and cutting themselves and going to a loony bin. Yeah, it was. It just seemed like um, I don't know if you know the the novels or the films of Alain Rogrier, who was I like don't. the <laughs> yeah. he, he was the French new novel. And and it was, and there are certain novels where it's it's just stripped away where there's sort of porn images and kind of nightmare images that become a fresco and. They're, they're not related to each other in the usual ways. And that's what I thought was kind of interesting in Brett's thing was there wasn't that that sort of, um, you know, boilerplate plot that you usually have in a sort of teen exploitation movie. Um, 
There was just it was the goods. Just, it was just the goods. Yeah, yeah just, just the, the kind goods. Of sexual energy mm-hmm. um, with that dark energy, and yeah, it's kind of like Joan Didion meets Instagram meets a lot of a lot of good things. And Brett actually directed that, which I think he directed. It. I think he did a great job. He did a great job. He, I, he has some secretive project he's working on now, so hopefully he's going to get another chance to direct. Is what he always talks about on his pod. But as of now, it's the only thing he's directed. I do think it's very good. Um, but yeah, on, just to wrap it up on Looking Glass. Um, not even to talk about this. I mean, it didn't get a good critical response, and I, I kind of saw it for the first time recently, and I don't really know why it didn't get a good critical response. I think it's pretty good. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. you liked it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to say your definitive opinion on the final product if you don't. I, want to, I don't. You know, I don't. It's I better don't. than people gave it credit. I think. Okay. I think Tim Hunter did did good work. I think it's it just has a tone that I like. Um, okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I'm I'm sure everyone involved will take it. Yeah. 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 Okay, we'll we'll wrap up on Looking Glass then. Um, I definitely want to talk to you a little more about projects you have upcoming. Uh, we could kind of do that towards the end here, um, but maybe it makes sense because we were just talking about Looking Glass. Uh, I wanted to ask you, we talked a little about this when we first met the other week, uh, but just your general take on movies that have been coming out, movies from last year. Mm-hmm. And to lead things off, I'll ask about something specific um, on the subject of Nick Cage. Have you seen this movie he's in now, uh, Inside? That's the foe. I'm so sorry. Yes, I I, I know that. I, yeah. I, uh, not Nick Cage, obviously. Defoe from Donnie yeah. Duck. No, I haven't yeah. seen Inside, but I was in a theater last night where I was watching a very quiet movie, Edward Yang's movie, Taipei Story. And in the theater next door, Willem's Inside movie was playing. And this very quiet movie was kind of overwhelmed by all these thuds and thumps yeah. and bumps and grumps that were coming from that room he's locked yeah. in whatever yeah. whatever it is but i haven't seen it yet. it looks great though. yeah no it is great i wanted to say i wanted to give the opinion that um you know i'm not as many people in this general sphere people likely to be listening to this podcast people kind of in the bready stanellis orbit like there's a there's a pessimism about a lot of movies coming out um i do think that's a good one i think i saw it a couple weeks ago and i think it's i think defoe does very good work that's i was great. curious because because yeah i i know it's defoe not cage slip of the tongue there but because you because you'd work with defoe in the past i he i was curious i recommend it um but outside of that um yeah i guess we could frame it this way what are what, what was your favorite movie from last year what's what's the good stuff that's coming uh, out? Yeah. my my favorite movie la- last year was a film that was very little seen it played in new york and la for a moment uh, and it's uh, this filmmaker. He is, I don't know. You know, some people call him a minimalist. Some people call him a formalist. Uh, James Benning, hmm. and he makes movies that are generally landscapes. He will put a camera in front of a cloud or a mountain and shoot them for sometimes an hour at a time. And it's a very strange experience to watch his films with an audience people first they're into it then they go crazy then they go even crazier then they get antsy then they relax and they give over to it and they surrender and then they start to like it and then they hate it again you really feel this pulsation you feel this yeah. push and pull in the audience um, and I asked Benny at one of these screenings what you know I said you know I can't imagine these movies without the, the theatrical experience of being in a room with other people watching them and seeing stuff happen and he said I don't give a fuck about that stuff I just he goes I just want to be precise when I photograph something I want to be precise I don't know if I believe that or not it was sort of evidence of you know don't 
don't listen to artists interpreting their own work because they're often wrong. But Benning made a movie last year. It was a remake of a film that he made in 1975 with his partner at the time, uh, Betty Gordon. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So James Benning made this movie that was a remake of a picture that he did in 1975 called The United States of America with Betty Gordon, who was his girlfriend at the time. They made this movie together on the road driving through the States. So he did a remake of it in 2022 that was um, a series of shots, each one about two minutes, that each shot was assigned to a different state of the union. So you've got Alabama, and then you've got, uh, you know, you've got Maine, you've got Wyoming, blah, 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 blah. And the sort of comic punchline of the movie is that at the end it says, filmed entirely on location in Valencia, California. <laughs> yeah. So it's as if the whole United States is manufactured yeah. in, in California. But it's, it's these images that sometimes are images of nature, sometimes images of landscapes, sometimes images of pop cultural posters, sometimes images of people, and there's occasionally some audio underneath it. There's like Stokely Carmichael talking, there's a Native American activist talking underneath one thing. It's politics, it's culture, it's biology, it's geology, it's all these things put in a form that we very, very rarely see in a motion picture. And it's boffo. Like, it totally works with an audience. Like, the audience is just sitting there going, oh my god, you know, Vermont's over, what's Wyoming gonna be? You know, there's like <laughs> yeah. this great suspense to yeah. the movie. And you That's feel a lot of yeah. emotions throughout this movie. I will check it out, yeah. And a lot of reactions. I don't think it's... I, I think Benning is a weirdo. I don't, I don't think it's like on any sort of home video. You can find Benning's films. If you go to YouTube, there's like a channel that has like all his stuff. But it's weird. I've looked at them at home, like, you know, on a laptop like this. And it's like nothing. It's like yeah. watching a screensaver. No, you want to see there. it in theater. You, you yeah. have to feel it with other people, I think. It's... A, it's it's not even so, it's not about the picture so much as it is really about the communal experience of seeing something yeah. that's really different from what our movie going experience usually is it's about yeah. it's he talks a lot about the the verb seeing and it's really about seeing looking at something and sitting with it and really seeing the fullness of it um, no, so that was a great film I thought last year and then I also thought another great film was Cronenberg's uh, Crimes of the Future mm-hmm. Which to me is very much a movie about the present. You know, it's about transhumanism. It's about what happens when people view their bodies as these customizable objects that yeah. they can turn into into something different. What does it do to their identity? Um, what does it mean when you start pushing the limits of mortality? You know, it's a world where there is no infection and no pain. So people start expressing their affection for each other by standing on street corners and sawing each other's hugging each other and sawing each other's shoulders with knives you know and you and as you're watching the movie you feel like oh this kind of you know kind of makes sense you know it seems like i can see that yeah yeah and the thing that i thought was so interesting about the movie as we get into this you know a moment of trans in the in the culture and also a, a moment where you know with ai where we seem to be heading towards some higher or different ground than we've been standing on is that I think the, the, the real shocker of this movie is that I think Cronenberg is really upbeat 
Like there's yeah. an optimistic feeling at the end that you sort of feel like, okay, as humans, maybe we're in this sort of climate disaster that the movie lives in, but we're going to somehow kind of Find our way turn into something different. Spirit, maybe it's something yeah. that we may look at now and be, be revolted by, but we're going somewhere. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going some, We're not just falling down. We're going somewhere. Yeah. And, and no, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, that's definitely a good, uh, good teaser for it. Uh, yeah, it's really, it's yeah. really excellent. And you, you, when you see movies, so you know, when you were kind of planning this podcast out and, and meeting originally, uh, it seems like you're going to the movies like a few times a week. You're still a believer. Oh, I, I, I go a lot. It's, yeah. it's for me something that I, you know. I don't know if other people have this. But for some people, they do it in the, in, at the at the gym. They, get, I mean, it's or, or you know, maybe they go to church or something. Yeah. But it's something where I feel like you go to a space, you watch a film, and for that moment, everything drops. Everything yes. falls to the floor, and you go into this. You know, James Cameron, who I don't think of as a great thinker, said something really smart <laughs> yeah. recently. He occasionally says smart oh, yeah, things. Yeah, he said, he, yeah. said the in, he said the single individual unit of cinema is a face talking. Which I thought, that sounds like Godard more than it sounds like yeah, James yeah. Cameron. But he said something recently, which is, he said, you know, when you go to a movie theater, you pay to have your attention hijacked. You pay absolutely. to not be like, yeah. I'm looking at my phone, no, looking at my email, I'm looking at my... Absolutely critical. You're yeah. paying to go somewhere else. And it's not going to be the same, even if you have the nicest home theater system imaginable. I don't think you, that has anything to do with it, actually. I mean, oh, really? I, Okay, well, maybe. I don't have that. No, no, I no, I don't either. Yeah. But I'm yeah. just saying, like, okay, I could have a nice home theater, but, like, if my phone's buzzing in my pocket, I'm still going to kind of go, hmm, okay. You know, that's what I'm saying. Um, like, if you, if you, it's 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 you like the the act of going somewhere in your car, sitting with other people, is also part of it. You know, absolutely. Yeah. So it is that you mentioned going to church. Fascinating. Like, it is that communal feeling about it, and I think it's really important. The last movie I saw like that, not the last movie I saw in a theater, but the last movie where I saw it in a the theater and it felt meaningful that I saw it in a the theater was Tar, which I was also going to mm-hmm. ask you. I know I know your opinion on it. I was going to ask you about mm-hmm. it for the pod. Um, and you know that movie I think is great. It's pretty much my you know, that fairly basic opinion, but it's one of my favorite movies from last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just know that as go- as much as I like it, it would not have been the same if I'd watched it on a laptop. Oh, no way. Um, I needed to kind of be glued in that seat for three hours and really be on the ride with uh, this character, Lydia Tarr, Kate Blanchett. Um, you know, it just was a very good movie-watching experience. But, yeah, it's funny. You know, yeah. there are some movies like that that are not, you know, it's like, in a way, it's like not a particularly cinematic movie. It's a talking movie. But there is something when you see Tarr in a theater... Uh, it's it has so long. T- like you need to. I don't know. I need that. But yeah. I feel like this, it also has this kind of tingling excitement. That's like watching a live show. It's yeah. like watching Kate Blanchett. I've yeah. seen her on stage, and I think she actually was more exciting on stage in Tar than when I saw her appear in a play. Yeah. Uh, but it has that feeling of a performance, un- Very like much. unfolding yeah. in front of your eyes, which um, I really dig that. But you know, I I love. Um, Theatrical experiences that are not always like, oh, I'm in, a, I'm in a huge theater filled with people laughing their heads off or crying or whatever. I've been, you know, I remember seeing a, a great Eric Romer movie uh, uh, called Astre and Celadon that's about like sort of, uh, uh, it's like a sort of medieval poem about shepherdesses and, and sort of magical characters that I saw at the Anthology Film Archives in New York with two very wet bag ladies coming in out of the rain. Yeah. And I don't think th- I don't even know if they were paying attention to the movie that was unspooling yeah. in front of them. They just wanted heat. Yeah. Uh, but it was such a sublime experience and 
I think of that all the time. You know, Richard Brody, who I respect very, very much, and I uh, love him. He's a film critic of The New Yorker. And he said something like, you know, to me, the film is the whole equation. It's like a, you know, it's like to him, like a biopsy on a slide. And to me, the film is the film, of course. It is itself. But it's also the experience that surrounds the film. Did you see this film with a girl that you were in love with? Did you see this film with your parents? Did you see it alone in a dark theater? Um, I remember, just to go back to this movie, I was in the early 90s, I was working on an opera in a small town uh, in Lille in in France. Um, I was the guy who made the extras in Don Giovanni whirl around. And I had a day off. I, I didn't speak great French. I didn't know anybody in the town. Um, and I was walking around in the morning on a Tuesday and I came upon a little tiny box of a cinema that was playing Taxi Driver. Yeah. And I went in and it was like I could have been watching It's a Wonderful Life. It was a little slice of home. All of a sudden, oh, there's Travis Bickle. Yeah, yeah. And I found myself laughing. You know, it's that film is actually a very funny movie. Yeah. And I was laughing at stuff, and these French people would turn their heads back at me and look at me like, that's not funny. Because the subtitles didn't render it funny. Yeah. But actually, it was, it was funny. extremely yeah, funny. Yeah. But that was just, to me, an experience of, like, that was so memorable because it's this very unheartwarming movie that was totally heartwarming. That was like a little yeah. slice yeah. of the homeland. Sticks with you, yeah. Um, but I love that. That's the thing that I feel like... You know, you couldn't name your top ten home video experiences. You no. couldn't. Yeah. But you could probably name a bunch of really good theater experiences Definitely. that def- yeah. that aren't necessarily great movies. They were just great moments that you you remember. Yeah. For the experience. No, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, one one thing that really comes across in any other podcast or interview I've uh, heard or read from you is that, you know you are definitely like a true cinephile. Um, you know, you have this encyclopedic knowledge of um, of movies from the you know sixties. Maybe not encyclopedia. Maybe maybe, maybe, maybe that's too much. But uh, but nevertheless, so I did I did think a fun question as we move towards the end here. Not that this has to be the last question, but uh, are there what are what are if it's not too hard of a thing to sort of think of, you can name them off the top of your head, which I get the feeling maybe you can. What are five or ten uh, movies that you feel like a lot of millennials and Gen Z haven't seen? That would behoove them if there's people who are serious about movies. To oh, watch. sure. Uh, it doesn't I mean, have to be ten. That's a lot. But there's you know, so, just, there's so many. I mean, I would say just to throw just off the top of my head, one that you can see on YouTube, that's a movie that's almost extinct. I think it's one of the best films of the '70s that no one knows. The only person who ever really supported this movie was Pauline Kael. No one else really gave it a lot of love. It's a movie by Yvonne Passer called Born to Win. Hmm. And it's about a junkie played by George Siegel. Now, I don't know if, if your listeners know George Siegel, but he spent most of his career doing sort of light comedies. He was considered a light comedy guy. He came up around sort of the time of Elliot Gould, and he did sort of light stuff. And in this movie, he plays a junkie in New York who's a hairdresser, but he is in that point where his addiction is such that he really spends all his time hustling to get junk and to and you know to kind of keep himself in the stuff and has schemes and scams and all kinds of things um and karen black plays his girlfriend and it's to me the beauty of this film is it's one of those really rare things 
where you see a movie that is hyper naturalistic it's gritty it's grimy it's new york in 1971 not pretty locations and yet it's the most poetic movie yeah. it is the most lyrical movie it's the most exquisite um it's gorgeous uh, and it's it's very it, that's that's a movie that's very little known. Then I would say you know for for people who are young, one thing to look at that I think, in my experience, people who are young who are cinephiles aren't pushed towards too much. Yeah, is sort of the golden age of of Hollywood, like pre nineteen sixty. Yeah, no, you, you know? don't. I, I mean, my my knowledge of that stuff is very limited. Yeah, I mean, I think that that stuff is is not being served up to people as much as it should. I mean, if, if people watch, um, if they, if, but see, young people don't generally have cable TV, but if you do, you turn to classic movies, obviously is essential for people. But I would say to people, you know, get into the canon of film, which is now, you know, being dismantled or just thrown in the closet. Ford, Hawks, Chaplin, Renoir, um, I mean, I'll just throw off the top of my head. There's one great movie that I think it's, it has a very contemporary feel. Anthony Mann, who is a great journeyman director, made some great westerns, made great epic uh, uh, sort of sword and sandal movies at the mm-hmm. end of his life. But a very personal filmmaker, particularly in the 50s, very violent, neurotic, dark movies in popular genres. But he did a movie in the early 40s called Dr. Broadway. That's about a guy who's who's a doctor in sort of a guys and dolls like Broadway milieu, mm-hmm. and part of the movie is sort of like a screwball comedy. Part of the movie is like a really lethal noir, and the way the two sort of swirl around each other is very weird. It feels a little bit like a contemporary. Coen Brothers movie like you can yeah. see them taking those two That's worlds those and kind of spinning yeah. them around each yeah. other but the way this movie does it is really really unexpected and, and funny and strange uh, and that's like a nobody's seen that movie and I, I really recommend that one uh, yeah, no. to everyone that's good yeah no I think that's a good uh, good answer I'd give some people the couple couple titles there and some just general guidelines to sink yeah. their teeth into I mean it's something yeah. I think about a lot I you know I, I would never call myself a cinephile because I can't uh you know that meme like oh you you say you're a Nirvana fan name all their songs or like I, I I wish I knew I wish I had a little bit more of that like knowledge because there's so I know there's so many great movies I haven't seen but oh, I always like just, to hear just great yeah, stuff there's just yeah. a lot of great stuff a lot of great stuff that's just off the radar unfortunately not on the streamers or not obviously on them but you know yeah. what I think is it's really funny is is for people who are I don't know for people who are writing movies or directing films here or, or wh- yeah. whatever they're doing the thing that I think is is so in, it's so nourishing to me in terms of studying film uh, and, and and sort of um, ingesting a lot of film is the, the thing that's cool about it is the influences on you are not necessarily the ones you might expect so that like while doing while while writing doggy dog um, that scene with Louisa and Chris Cook, to me, it really does. It actually really does play out like a Woody Allen scene. Yeah. And I feel like I kind of got that scene. Not that I stole it, but the feeling of it comes as if you're watching a comedy drama. Yeah. By Woody Allen. Yeah. Not some tough guy movie where people are <laughs> punching each other in the face, but 
that kind of movie. Yeah. And, and I feel like those things feed into you not in the obvious ways. They sometimes sprout their heads up. A lot of it's up. sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? By osmosis almost. Like it's just yeah. part of your yeah. artistic upbringing and yeah. it, it seeps in. But, and that's often very much the art is, is bringing different things together in novel ways and it produces really good results. But uh, I guess we're winding down a little bit towards the end of the conversation. But any other... Um, hot takes you might want to get off your chest on um or about anything i was going to say about you know oscar fair from last year on tar or everything or all everything everywhere all at once if you want to comment or any good tv but uh, actually i'll just open the floor i mean anything you want to uh good tv yeah. yeah i i really liked this series called swarm hmm. i don't know if you've seen no that. i haven't Don, yeah. donald glover who did atlanta i want to watch atlanta everyone tells me atlanta oh atlanta really good Atlanta's, yeah atlanta's yeah. great seasons one two and four are really good three is kind of if yeah but ah. he's a genius, and it's a series about um, a, a, a girl who's part of the. Somebody told me they, they call it the Bayhive, Beyonce. Oh, the Beehive, yeah. <laughs> or is it the Beehive? Yeah. Is it the Beehive yeah. or the Bayhive? I think it's the Beehive, but it might be. I, I don't said know. Beehive, and someone yeah. corrected me and said Bayhive, but whatever. Uh -huh. The Beyonce yeah. Hive. So it's a, a, a young girl who is, who is into that, mm -hmm. and. She finds people who are on Twitter talking shit about the Beyonce character, and she kills them. And Donald Glover said that it was based on the piano teacher and the King of oh, Comedy. Right, right, right. I'm familiar. I haven't seen it, but I, I've I've read about this. It's it's a TV show. I'd say, it's I thought a it was a movie. That's it's why it's a limited I was like, series. Yeah, I think it's like seven series, episodes, which is kind of like the new version of a movie in some way. Uh, uh, I mean, it's a whole other you know ball of wax, but yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Last episode not so good, but. The real shocker is in the fourth episode. There's this sort of um, what what in the seventies they used to call an encounter group. This group of women yeah. who are sort of being groovy together and being, you know, enhancing feminism. And it's run by Billie Eilish. And if you had never seen her before, you would see her in the show and you would think she was some. Uh, New York Broadway extremely experienced actress, stage actress who is just full of chops yeah. and so full she's of really good. confidence. She's fantastic. That's good. Fantastic. Good. And nothing like this sort that sort of like blob persona that she has, you know, wow. on stage. Yeah. She's really poised and really and really cocky and cool. Yeah. And fantastic. I'm glad to hear that for her because uh, not to talk about music much, but I'm glad to hear that for her because it seems like she was kind of um, one of the like last remaining like pop stars for a minute there, but she's kind of, with all due respect to her, fallen. Like I, you don't really <laughs> really she'll be twenty. I know right? but, well, like that's the thing, but like she hasn't had a hit song in a while. Maybe I'm just out of the. She loop. won an Oscar when she was twenty. Great, great for her. All I'm saying is like uh, I don't. Feel <laughs> How like many people I'm hearing, can say that? Not many. I just don't feel like I'm hearing her music as much. But if she has acting chops, that's good. I mean, she can. She can do that. Okay, here's my <laughs> yeah. here's my beautiful neighbor. You're on a podcast now, Wendy. Here's the question: Is oh, yes. is Billie Eilish washed up? Uh, what? No. I didn't say she was washed up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. She's fresh and happy. Is yeah. she is she fresh over the happening. hill? How could she be over the hill? She's under 21. <laughs> is she still under 21? Over the hill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you seen her on this TV show, Swarm? Uh, no, but I love her. Oh my yeah. God, no, I like her too. Yeah. The only point I was trying to make is I think 
it's, I'm just glad that she she's a good actress too. There's she's another great. direction because music can be such a short-lived 15 minutes of fame thing. I can't believe so. I, I photobombed <laughs> a, a podcast. <laughs> Wait, what's the first? book? May I see? Oh, it's so good, so good. Beautiful writers. Okay, maybe this is appropriate to this. Yeah, it's journey really of big dreams and messy manuscripts. Interesting. Marvelous. I'm waiting for one of my writing colleagues right now. So cool. I'll carry on. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. <laughs> sure, you too. Um, well, I think we're almost ready to wrap up. Okay. Um, but I was going to ask you what you thought. We should, uh, this Peter Vax screening. Uh, oh. Uh, yeah. 420. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. should we should do that. I was going to, okay. have you seen his movie? I, I was going to. I, I, yeah. I started watching it once late at night. And I, there were some scenes I liked. But it also had that bolt driver, like that sort of like. Oh, it definitely is that, yeah. That frenetic, frenetic editing. Not and not even like everything everywhere, but like sort of YouTube frenetic yeah. editing that just kind of gave me a bit of a headache. But I'm 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 happy to watch the whole thing. I know all lots of people I greatly respect respect it. So yeah, no, yeah, I'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm interested it. to check it out. I just you know I was curious about the general sense that like have you heard this concept of the vibe shift and like uh, yeah, but what, what is that? What is that uh, about? A little bit like we were talking about politically or like, well, not not exactly, just people kind of in. I mean, one way to define it is people in creative fields, the fashionable world, the red, red, red scare is the vibe shift is one way to understand They are the vibe shift? Yeah, in, in a way. It's well, like that, that, that cultural influence where all of a sudden it's not not everyone's liberal in the way they once were. And instead there's these alternative <laughs> points of views. Right. And, and it's seeping into art. Obviously, Peter Vack works with Dasha and them. So I guess that would be... Uh, well, I'll just say this. I was, yeah. I was at... An, okay, this is so bad. I was at the Metrograph recently. Mm with a friend, you know, the restaurant part of the Metrograph upstairs, and um, our our server was a, a painter, and she yeah. was talking about her painting and about art school, and she was sort of fed up with the political correctness of art school, and the friend that I was with said to her, oh, uh, are you familiar with the Red Scare podcast? <laughs> yeah. And without missing a beat, this, this girl, who's probably about 25, said, I consider myself post-Red Scare. Oh wow, that's kind of frightening in a way. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I was like, I don't even know what that means. What does yeah, that mean? Yeah, well, maybe something. Maybe it's maybe it's the vibe <laughs> shift. I, I don't know. Uh, but Is that a post shift shift. A post shift shift, or like, uh, you know, maybe maybe it could be. You know, post doesn't always mean anti, right? Like post is like like post punk or like post impressionism. Like you're you're someone who the the, the wheels of that thing have traveled uh-huh. over you, uh, or like you've been. Like that's part of your upbringing is like just being immersed in Red Scare, whatever the case might be, and you are looking through the world from those eyes and wow. finding new possibilities. Eh, this is all rather abstract, so we can we can diverge from it. But um, but in, just to wrap things up, again, anything else you any other closing thoughts? Uh, closing thoughts? I don't know. I guess we were, we were, you know, the overview is talking about the creative process, and I think. Um, I just want to underline. I want to underline finishing to people, and I want to also just come up. There's one thing I would just like to say to people about their creative work, which is I was for a long time, well, I don't know, two, three years. I taught here in Los Angeles at the Fashion Institute. I taught writing, all different kinds of writing, critical writing and creative writing and all sorts of stuff. And one thing that was always very shocking and kind of a little sad to me was I would try to get people to write about things. I would say write about something that you feel really passionately about. You could hate it. You can love it. It could be a pair of shoes. It could be your boyfriend. It could be a fried egg. Whatever, whatever you just feel something about, give it to me in words. 
whatever that is. And I would have some moments where I would kind of look out at a sea of faces that were just yeah. blank, nothing. They weren't mad about anything. They weren't hungering for anything. They weren't lusting for anything. I think f- for artists, at least certainly on, in, in, a, in, a, in an opening phase, I think the most important thing is to know your own feelings, to know what turns you on, to know what scares the shit out of you, to know um, what makes you laugh, to know what um, angers you, to have those moments, to have, and, and really literally to have things in, in books and movies that you can point to and say, this moment blew my mind. This moment is amazing. Yeah. I want to conceive and create something that is like, that has the power and attack of this thing. And I feel like we're we're in a culture where people are not particularly encouraged to feel that kind of vividness in their emotions about something. And I think if you can tap into that, all the other stuff, the craft, is really, it will come. It will it's come. secondary yeah. to that. If you don't have that powerful heartbeat that something really sets your hair on fire, if you don't have that, you can have all that craft and you have really nothing. nothing. Yeah. You got nothing. Yeah. All right, I think that's a good note to end on. All right. Yeah.